0: and welcome once again to the Director's Club podcast. I am Jim Lazkowski, proud to present to you two very special guests that we haven't had on the show in quite a while. You know them as the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts out there, the Cinecast over at Row3.com, And you'll definitely recognize one of them from the Soderbergh Part 1 episode, way back in November of 2011, where at the very beginning he impersonated a turkey. And, uh, you know, at the end of that episode, we promised we'd do a sequel to Soderbergh within a year. Well, four years later, we finally came through on on our promise. Welcome back, Andrew
1: James. Thanks man. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm super excited. I I can't believe that it's been 4 years, but uh I know it's crazy. I guess it has been. So, Indeed. Yeah. I Long I rewatched ET, e. I rewatched uh Saving Private Ryan, I watched Duel uh and War of the <laughs> Worlds, so I'm super excited. No, that's This is Soderbergh, not Spielberg. Oh, Oh, shit! Did I watch the wrong guy i'm I'm sorry, well, you know what? I can wing Soderberg any day of the week, so that's fine that's okay i yeah i uh, I', I uh,
0: started watching nothing but Peterberg movies <laughs> so <laughs> um, and there's nothing wrong with that. no, no, of course not. Rundown rules, and of course, you just heard him, and you love him for his uh tendency to elaborate for hours on end. But he's chock full of smarts. He's the one and
2: only Kurt Halfyard. Welcome back, Kurt. Well, thanks for letting me into uh, the part two of the uh, shindig, and I can't believe it's been that long since you guys recorded the first one. But in the ensuing time, on our other show, um, we in- instituted the soundtrack from Out of Sight uh, hey, yeah. to open our show, and uh, so Soderberg is kind of the. The tie that binds at least beginning and endings of our show on a regular basis so i'm happy to do uh cinecast goes over across the aisle to uh to the director's club
0: yeah isn't that uh not off, but uh crossover or what is it when like the family guy appears on the simpsons or i don't know there's a term for when <laughs> <It's> crossover <laughs> um, show crossover okay yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, uh, of course, I had this, I I, st- I decided to start the show with the Isley Brothers song from the Out of Sight soundtrack to not completely plagiarize you guys. So,
1: all right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so as most listeners know by now, um, a few episodes removed, uh, aside from a few bonus episodes and a couple more to come, Patrick has departed for the time being and, um, he sort of approved with my uh, instincts to bypass the What We Watch segment and sort of just get right to things and get right to the director. But I do want to mention really quickly here that previous guest and friend to the show, Sean Pierce, uh, had the pleasure of premiering his debut feature film at the Fantasia Film Festival. And it's called Meathead Goes Hog Wild. Um and I've got to, I've I've seen it, and I gotta say, it, it, it's pretty good. It, it's no, it's pretty great. Um, I plan to write a review for it within the week. Um, but as a huge fan of sort of unhinged deconstructions of masculinity, uh, this one is kind of tops in my book. But I, I'm a little biased, mainly because it captures Chicago so well, um, better than most films have in a very long time. And I'm not sure when and if it'll be playing at a festival or a theater near you, but just keep the title in mind for the future. Meathead Goes hog Hogwild. Um, I know you were at
2: the Fantasia Film Festival, but you, I don't think you got to see it, Kurt. But um, uh, It played before I got there, and Sean had left like hours before I arrived in town. But I can tell you this, amongst the programmers and critics and kind of the little circles that i swim in when i'm at fantasia that was a very 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 talked about film i okay. only know really one person that hated it and <laughs> unfortunately do. she was the one who wrote the review for it up on twitch film uh but uh, everyone else seemed to really uh dig the vibe not the least of which uh, the film festival uh like a uh, creative director uh, Mitch Davis, who was like a huge fan of that film and was basically pressuring anyone who would, uh, was within earshot to, uh, to check it out. But I have, I have yet to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it, it's
0: quite good. And, uh, Sean Pierce was on our Vim vendors episode and the infamous fast beender episode. And, you know, he's, he's a great guy and I just wanted to give him props for, um, a really solid debut. Um, so, yeah, uh, and as, as for my guests here, too, really quickly to, to catch up, I know,
2: Kurt, you are featured in a book about Satanic Panic, correct? Yep, that actually uh, launched during the Fantasia Film Festival. But now, uh, the if you go over to Spectacular Optical's website and uh, and buy the book, it, it is actually shipping now. So if you were at the Fantasia Film Festival, you could get kind of a a week ahead of its, you know, actual shipping date, uh, release of the book. But now, uh, on the website, it's, uh, it's actually shipping, uh, all the, I believe all of the people that were in the Indiegogo campaign for final funding money have all those copies have been shipped. So now it's just like a regular, you, you can just buy it and and have it sent to your door. And yes, uh, uh, another film that's near and dear to my heart and filmmaker, um, Joe Dante's The Burbs is what I'm writing on. And awesome. uh, yeah, I think it's the only comedy uh, piece in the book. But I'll, oh. I'll, I'll warn you, my, my piece isn't particularly funny. I actually take the film serious. and, uh, and uh, But still, I enjoyed writing that. And I'm glad it, uh, it has seen the light of day. Me too. Very
0: proud. Uh, great choice. Do, I'm assuming, do, do you bring up the original ending in your essay? Oh yes. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Um, I'm definitely going to be picking that up soon because Satanic Panic is a, a theme I'm very
2: interested in. Um, oh, and it's a big. If you've seen Spectacular Optical's first book, like uh, Kayla, Janice, and Paul Krupp, they 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 gather a bunch of people to write fairly lengthy, you know, well, well footnoted reference, not academic style, but but at least you know researched pieces on various things in their first book kid power which was a uh, uh, a book on empowered kids uh movies and television from the 70s and 80s and it was this little tiny book it was a cute little thing and but i mean it was it had a lot of content in it but the um the satanic panic book has way more people in it and we we were joking that it's it's the kid power is kid sized than the satanic power is satan sized and it's it's <laughs> much it's like over 500 pages. It's a, it's a fairly big tome. And uh, the one thing I love about that style or in general is that you can read it in any order, right? You can, yeah. you can just pick and choose whatever interests you. You can read it linearly. You can, you can do whatever because it's a, it's a lot of separate authors and separate parts and, and all different continents um, that have been curated if sorts by the, uh, by the editors. Terrific. Well,
0: um I'll definitely leave a link in the show notes for folks who are interested in checking that out. Um and Andrew, you just finished up your degree. Yes. Whee! Woohoo! Congrats, man.
1: <laughs> Thanks, dude. Yeah, I feel really good about it. I'm Good. Just uh I was just thinking about before the show, what am I going to do with myself now? Cuz every day has been writing papers and and now it's like I mean, I could go look for a job, but I realized <laughs> It's way more fun to just go to the theater every day, <laughs> so maybe I'll just stick with that for a while. Yeah, you can you can binge watch some shows too. I'm sure. Totally, totally, yep. So I I, I would like I... to
0: recommend the show Rectify, which I know Kurt, you've seen at least yep, a season of. Big out. fan. Yeah. Big fan of that show. Love yep. it. Um, I'm all caught up with it, and I, I I I think it just keeps getting better. Some of the best acting you're gonna see.
1: Rectify on the list. Yeah, it's absolutely. Pretty, it's pretty close to rectal, but <laughs> I have nothing to plug.
2: When, when does this show actually land? Because there's a Soderbergh timeliness to the show in the oh. sense that the man from Uncle is in the cinema right now. And Soderbergh for a long time was set to direct that movie. Really? Oh, Scott Z. Burns, he, one of his regular writers, was had written the original screenplay, and I guess eventually he bowed out. I'd be very curious what his version of that film uh, would look like. Uh, as it stands, the the Guy Ritchie version is is pretty good, but mm. um, I don't know if it's if there's anything like a you know Quato in uh, Total Recall is is left over from David Cronenberg's <laughs> attachment to the project before before paul verhoven took it over but somehow that thing survived and it's really a memorable part of that film i don't know if anything of soderbergh's sensibilities made it into the final film when it got made but uh, i'd like to think by the fact that much like soderbergh's films they're they're, they're pretty small in scale even when they're big in scale um sure and that's kind of what the Man from Uncle is. It's a it's a big, expensive blockbuster with a small scale, which is actually quite delightful.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I thought you were going to actually mention that uh, the Nick season two is going to premiere very soon here.
2: So you have no idea how excited I am for Me that too. season. Uh, that is one of the best things on television, and yep. that's a weird thing to say because there's so much good stuff on TV. And uh, I almost binge watched the whole thing prior to this show, uh, <laughs> just because. Why the heck wouldn't you? Yeah, it's 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 something special. Well, let's just go ahead
0: and get right into it. <laughs> Soderbergh uh, analysis from episode one, or part one I should say, with both traffic and a brief talk on Ocean's Eleven, and I I remember towards the end of the episode, I mentioned how I would love to talk about the Limey and Solaris as well, but as, as time has gone on, there are a few more titles of his that are every bit, if not more interesting to discuss, including The Informant, Contagion, and maybe to a lesser extent, we might touch on uh, side effects and Haywire. But we're going to do our best to keep the conversation focused and in chronological order here. So let's go ahead and start with um, what used to be one of my favorites, um, The Limey, which I have to admit has gone down just a tad in my mind because I finally caught up with um, Point Blank.
2: (laughs) Yep, (laughs) which is the clear precedent too uh
0: yeah yeah it's it's interesting i i didn't get a chance to listen to the entire uh uh filmmaker writer commentary but um uh, the 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 screenwriter insists that like oh we weren't even thinking about point blank at all we were mainly influenced by uh new wave french cinema and and things like that which i can see of course but I, i find it hard to believe that point blank wasn't uh kind of an influence whether on a subconscious level or not but I just I just think that Point Blank is like the pinnacle of revenge films and has even more nuance and style to it but with the Limey it has a lot to say about regret and memory and you know touches upon 60s idealism with Peter Fonda and uh, family relations and it's all coaxed in this really simple genre film carried brilliantly by Terrence Stamp and I'm what really drew me to this movie, um, first and foremost, was the editing style. Which, of course, we get to see glimpses of um, in Out of Sight, particularly with the Gary and Celeste sequence. Um, I'm just, I just love the fractured narrative, and you know, and there's even a like kind of a lack of closure and catharsis at the at the very end of the movie. And I just like Soderbergh's tendency to portray protagonists who are often at odds with their environments and often to a fault too so where do you guys land upon the limey overall i still think it's a it's a really great film but it, I, I i don't know if i would put it in the top tier
1: go ahead kurt
2: well uh the limey if not for oceans 10 aka out of sight um <laughs> uh, the Limey would be easily my favorite Soderbergh. It it was uh, a film that blew me away when I saw it theatrically sure. the first time. I I don't know. I've seen it maybe, I want to say at least 15, maybe 20 <laughs> times since its release. Um, I can throw it on any time because uh, it's really tight. And I always see new things. I I like breathing in its space. You mentioned Point Blank for the... Um, like the plot and and the uh, like the themes, but the literal audio bridging in point blank is what always I paired the limey with in the sense that the opening steps of uh, Lee Marvin uh, cut out of sync to make all of those beginning edits make sense, and that's really what the limey does all the time. And right. yeah. uh, I mean. Yeah, I, I, it's absolutely top tier for me. It's it's that lovely place where Soderbergh is being crazy experimental with things. I mean, he's incorporated Ken, the Ken Loach film to stand in for all of the young yeah, Terrence Stamp touch. stuff. And to be perfectly honest, Terrence Stamp was kind of the British equivalent of um, Fonda. You know, he was kind of the British countercultural icon and in, in all the films that he did. And so it, it's interesting to match them up like this. So there's a, a definite film history and a, and a there's an experimental thing, but there's an ear and an eye for history in the film. And more importantly, much like Out of Sight, which I, I guess I'd have to concede is my favorite film uh, by him, in that it it marries all of his experimental nature and whatnot to an incredibly accessible mainstream narrative. Everyone understands implicitly the revenge film. And there's, I mean, the is definitely weird when you watch it the first time because of all of its audio experimentalism. But, I mean, you can totally understand the film language and what the movie's about at, at any time, even if you don't always understand what's going on. Like, my question to you guys would be, all the shots of Terence Stamp on the airplane are any of them him actually arriving to America or are all of them him leaving? I I thought it was him leaving. Like I know the end is but and I don't uh, know, just be- there's so many away. cutbacks to it and it's all is it all of him leaving? Is it some of him arriving? It's 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 really fascinating that it well it doesn't matter, but it's still something that you know the the fact that he makes it not matter is interesting
1: i don't i guess i hadn't ever looked at it that way however because for the most part the movie is pretty linear i always assumed the stuff in the beginning was him coming to la mm-hmm. and thinking about his daughter and then when he's at the end when he's on the plane and leaving he's he's got a different little bit different perspective and thinking about different things and stuff so I don't know maybe on a rewatch I would have to look at it from a different perspective but I always thought it's him coming in him leaving um I don't know I this movie I I really like this movie too I found that um tonally I feel like it's it's clearly way way lower budget like I was getting like this weird reservoir dogs vibe kind of to it um but I, I'm sort of with Jim where it's a great movie. I love it. It's the, it's absolutely the Terrence Stamp show, um, yeah. and that'll never get old. Um, but I don't really feel – I don't feel like this is something I'm going to come back to over and over again. However, the one observation I had this time, uh, I love that the quote-unquote villain, Peter Fonda, is not this – like any other movie like this, revenge movie – I feel like they would put put the villain as um, just a ruthless, uh, crazy, may, maybe Bond villain, but maybe just, just like a really bad guy um, who who's shipping drugs and, and killing people left and right. They make this guy pretty regular. Like, he's scared through the whole thing. He's like, oh, I'm totally screwed, man. Or like just sitting around watching tv like did, did you just throw the peanut shells back into the bowl with the shells don't do that man like little and he to me he doesn't seem like the typical hollywood film villain he seems more like just the every man uh business guy yeah he's super rich and yeah the stuff that he's doing is illegal but they don't paint him as this just ruthless bloodless killer guy um which i totally had forgotten about watching at this time so I, I i thought that was really interesting to watch his demeanor and the way he handled himself and the way the script was written for him i thought it was great well two things on
2: that uh one you miss the fact that he is the world's worst shot with a gun. That is so good <laughs> when Terrence Stamp is walking down and he can't be more than 50 yards away. And, and, Stamp's not even like flinching. He's just walking at him and he is way wide of, of, of shooting at him. That's you're right. That's interesting to me. And two, Roger Ebert's review of the Limey back in 1999 points out that um, uh, Terrence Stamp, was put in prison the last time for robbing a pink Floyd concert that there is a strong possibility that Peter Fonda's character promoted. (laughs) So like they're connected on that. They're connected on the sense that he's making money off of the legit side of things and laundering money in essence. Whereas Terrence stamp is laundering money by literally being on the street, robbing the money out of the thing and that's an interesting contrast between <laughs> yeah. two guys that are both you know they're both in the music business in a weird sense that uh, but just totally in utterly different wor- worlds but Peter Fonda has many characters that mediate those worlds downward just as Terrence Stamp with Luce Guzman and Leslie Ann Warren has has friends that mediate up Slightly uh, towards that to understand, like to point out that 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 guys standing out in front in tuxedos are are actually valets <laughs> and not hired muscle.
0: Yeah, I I I especially like that it isn't it, it, it subverts your expectations of the revenge movie when um, Terrence Stamp chooses not to kill Peter Fonda in that moment. He just he empathizes with him and said. Uh, take a drink for whenever you use the word empathy in some context um, but yeah it's just it, it, it's it's a different approach and I know that like Soderbergh wasn't completely sold on even casting Peter Fonda just because he thought like he was going to cast two very stoic personalities but you know uh, Soderbergh met with Fonda realized how charismatic he was and you know that he, he sort of Realize this guy is the guy and you can still in at the end, you know, he does he doesn't fit that black and white villain type. Mm-hmm. He's in, more in the gray area and you can still find, um, humanity within him. And that's exactly what Terran Stamp kind of does in that moment because he realizes like, Oh yeah. Um, I was in the exact same, um, boat that you were at some point, And I just, uh, you know, that sort of moment of realization between them at the end is very powerful, I think.
1: Also, uh, just a little bit of a tangent here, but I mean, this wouldn't be a a, a Cinecast cross-promotion without mentioning the great Nicky Cat showing up here, too. Like, uh, that dude doesn't show up anymore much, um, so it's really fun when I go, oh, shit, yeah, I forgot he was in this. Love that dude. Yeah. Yeah, I mean 100%. for about five solid
2: minutes he monologues and owns the screen. Like he's yeah, that mocking bit on all set. the production assistants <laughs> yeah. on the mm-hmm. TV show that Warren's working on, and he's oh yeah, hey, they need that right away. Um and <sighs> it's just hilarious to watch him talk shit to his buddy, and he's so full of shit. Um yeah, it's it's really a delight, and it's weird. No other movie of this type would even include that scene, but it's so funny to just let them go. Yeah, the screenwriter the
0: screenwriter had more of a backstory for him in particular, and I know that I don't know if you if you listened to this commentary, it's I haven't listened to the whole thing. I just know like bits and pieces about it, but I think it's actually a very contentious uh, relationship that the writer and director
2: have. Um, because, oh, this is my favorite commentary to point out to people because yeah. they're actually still fighting about the movie in the commentary, right? Which is awesome. Which is
0: something you rarely
2: get to hear. But I know what do you that want like, the commentary?
0: yeah, yeah. And I, I, I know that uh, you know, screenwriter uh, Lem Dobbs was like, yeah, I had this in mind, but you decided to take it out, and you know, um, you, you sort of took away more of the, of the emphasis on family dynamics because Nikki Cat originally had in a relationship with his uncle and that was explored more, but you decided, you know, that was not necessary. And it's just an interesting back and forth between the two of them. And neither of them hold back throughout that commentary. And I just I think it's, it's really interesting. You get a lot of insight between what a screenwriter goes through. It's, he, he sort of turns into Charlie Kaufman basically <laughs> because he expresses yeah, like, a lot really? of frustration
2: they reconciled whatever differences they had and Soderbergh and Dobbs worked again on Haywire, which I believe is cut and edited and structured a lot more to what Dobbs wanted. Yeah. (laughs) Then like Soderbergh's like, okay, and we'll do it your way. As long as you let me pick the, you know, kind of stuff, but we'll, we'll shoot a much more conventional type of movie the second lot of experimentalism in Haywire other than its lead, uh, actor. And, and, and that works too. It totally works as well. So, um, I guess these two
1: can't really lose (laughs) together. All right. Maybe perhaps we should move on.
2: Yeah. Before (laughs) we leave blimey completely, there's a couple things I want to point out that make the movie great. When you were talking about, um, Fonda in the movie him cleaning his teeth while he's describing the 60s in a very expensive suit is just I don't know how many levels of brilliant uh, how that scene plays out it gives you insight to his character it meta connects um Fonda to the 60s it's yeah. um it, it just it does so many things um and he, he he actually even disillusions the myth of the 60s and points that it was just these couple years. Like, there's just so much going on in that one scene. And also at that party, that whole party sequence is so excellent. When Terrence Stamp and Louis Guzman are standing and they're looking out on the pool that's candle out over the, the valley uh, in the Hollywood Hills, and Luis Guzman says you could see the sea if you could see the sea, which is funny to me because it's so like the pollution <laughs> and the haze. They can't actually see what yeah. essentially you've paid for, um, which in a way describes what the limey is as a thriller often. Uh, and also uh, what I feel with, with all of Soderbergh's filmography, when they're looking at this pool, the, 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 the side and uh, Terrence stamp Wilson can't believe like that this even exists and he he says what are we even standing on and luis guzman says trust <laughs> that to me is like how i feel about <laughs> a lot of soderbergh's filmography what he does when he makes movies they're very postmodern and experimental and yet they all have this cl- i don't know what a swimming pool is uh it's just he's now stuck it out on this edge on two stilts ready to collapse over the side. I feel when he does a lot of these things like oceans 12 and the good German and bubble and contagion and the informant and so many things that we're going to talk about, that is what I walk into when I walk into a Steven Soderbergh film. That's, that's like, yes. Um, I don't understand what he's going to do on the outset, but I have trust. Um, I don't have to even give it the upward lilt of a question mark. I I have it full stop period trust when I go into his films.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I completely concur. And I feel like he's he, he's 100% audacious and you're guaranteed um, a unique experience, yet... <laughs> It's still, you know, undeniably Soderbergh, and at the same time, uh, throughout, like his latter part with things like *Contagion* and *Solaris*, and he does something with editing that just speaks to me directly, and I can't. It's hard to put it into words because it's got this really sort of fluid. Um, gracefulness to it that just like it it almost reminds me of upstream color in some ways where it's just it feels like um you know i don't want to say i don't want to just say malik again but just it just has like this um fractured memory quality to it where everything is not cohesive but it's just like in bits and pieces and yet they still um form in this really beautiful pattern that just like connects it with a cadence almost. And of course, you you can't deny a lot of that has to do too um, with... uh, A lot has to do with the strengths of Soderbergh's uh, films because of Cliff Martinez. Um, His scores are fucking phenomenal. Every time I uh, watch a Soderbergh movie, I'm like, I just just need to have that score um, to fall asleep to, (laughs) to meditate to, because they're all just they're all they're always just really unique um and i think that's that's a good transition into an experience that i'll never forget when i went to see solaris in the theater mm-hmm. <laughs> this might have the the record number of walkouts i think for 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 me um i don't know what a lot of people you know maybe they just saw oh george clooney is science fiction cool um <laughs> And yeah, I think like half the audience had walked out. Um, they were completely perplexed, and I hadn't. I to this day, I still haven't seen Tarkovsky's original version. Which, believe me, I will sit down and get through. Um, it took Patrick like five viewings to get through it all, and I, I'm in the same boat. So eventually, I'll get there. But this this movie, um, and I felt this way when I when I first saw it. Um, is really something special, and i I rarely get like a kind of like a, an emotional engagement with Soderbergh's films, but this this one really really affects me. And the cinematography is just top notch, and um, the fact that he just sort of streamlines things and makes it a you know a little bit more accessible by um, condensing it down, um, and you know it, he, he does give us these kind of really interesting expository flashbacks showing how um, Chris and his wife met and disintegrated and the implications of, you know, what happened. So, I mean, there's a lot going on here psychologically, and maybe that's why I'm drawn towards this one even more upon subsequent uh, rewatches. So this one has actually become top tier for me. I just, I love every single frame of Solaris. What do you guys think?
1: Uh, every single frame is absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. Abso- I totally give you that. Uh, it's, a, I mean, I guess it doesn't totally surprise me, understanding sort of the mainstream moviegoer, that th- this would be a, a huge walkout type of film. On the other hand, I don't know. I, it's, it's a little bit slow, but it is it's got captivating performances. I don't think the story is like difficult to follow uh, or even uninteresting. I mean, on some levels it's a mystery too. Like, what's going to happen? What's going on? Um, So I don't know. I sort of can see the walkout factor. On the other hand, I I just want to say to people, really? Like I, I, there's movies I love that people walk out of and I go, (laughs) okay, I, I, I get why you walked out of that one. This one, you really couldn't, Focus your attention for ninety minutes for this because it's it's not that like like I haven't seen the Tarkovsky one either, but from what I'm told is it's great, but it's a slog. You have to be in the mood, you got to be ready, and I'm sure Kurt can talk about that further. But I don't feel like this movie is in any way a slog. Um, No, so on that level, I don't I don't quite understand it. Um, And uh, this is you were talking about sort of like psychological and, and things to ponder. And, um, one of my favorite types of movies to go see, um, and they're usually like really high concept stuff, the, what would you do type of movie? And this is that, but on a much more sort of emotional and psychological level, because it's so hard to put yourself in that spot. Like, uh, just, it, it's still the what would you do? How would you feel? What kind of uh, reactions would you have in this moment? Um, but it's so much deeper and, um, affecting than, yeah. than any of those other, like a zombie, mo- like an apocalypse movie or 12 Angry Men or, or whatever. Um, I don't know. This one is so unique, all on its own, and I I wish that I had watched the Tarkovsky one actually before this recording, just for a compare and contrast, you know, scenario. But um, rewatching this, like I'm so glad that I just purchased it and will own this, and totally go back every couple three years and go, oh yeah, this thing is there's so much in here that there's no way I could parse all of it out on one viewing. Um, partly cause I'm distracted by the gorgeousness of it. And I'm not talking about like the Danny Boyle sunshine on the spaceship. Gorgeous. Even them talking and him like sitting in their kitchen or in a bookstore mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, <laughs> every single shot in this movie is one of the best looking movies I have ever seen like it's top 5. It is so good looking at least to my personal aesthetic and eye. So this uh this moved up huge in my uh, Soderberg ranking over the weekend. Yeah, it needs to come out on Blu-ray. See, I yeah, it, I don't know why it's not out on Blu-ray. The, I bought it on the Google Play because it is 1080p on there. Because it's the only mm. way you can get it. I mean, maybe there's a UK version or whatever. Maybe Kurt has something. Um, no, I have the same. I have the same
2: digital copy that you have. When I found out I could buy the movie in HD, uh, I I got on that and I've watched my HD copy. I don't know, probably eight times. I think outside of Soderbergh, I don't think anyone on this planet has seen Solaris. The the Soderbergh Solaris more times than i have i've seen it probably close to 50 times <laughs> what oh my mild obsession with this movie i watch it i could see all why? the time this is the third time i've seen this movie this year well it's
1: weird because it's short too yeah. is like it? Like 96 really short minutes or something because like an easy watch it's 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 a slower paced film but it, it's still short and, and easy to get through and I, it, it's it's
2: probably my third favorite Soderbergh film behind uh, *The Limey* and *Out of Sight*. Although it's very difficult with Soderbergh for me, I, I do like a lot of his films very oh, no. dearly. Um, and but this movie, I, I, I'm I've seen the Tarkovsky one. It took me several times back in the late '90s on VHS. To get through Solaris for the <laughs> first time. But when it came out on Criterion. And they have have that Criterion. And this is just DVD. Because I haven't seen the, the Blu-ray version. But the Criterion version. Not pan and scanned anymore. Even though it's it's still the same like epic length. Um, I've seen that version twice. And I quite like the Tarkovsky version. I think it does some more interesting things. Than Soderbergh. Does with the movie. However, the one Hofsky version utterly shits the bed on is the relation between Chris Kelvin and his wife. It's not even that large of a part of the film. <laughs> um, hmm. But it's like Soderbergh. Soderbergh has this history recently. He's recut 2001, he's recut Heaven's Gate, he decolorized raiders of the lost ark into a silent film he cut spike jones's her because spike jones was have trouble editing it so he just cut a version of her just as an exercise he he cut both the van Sant and the and the um hitchcock psychos together as a as an experiment film you can get all of this off of his like personal website uh and you can watch these things that he's embedded as Intellectual exercises, I feel, because he's this primary screenwriter on Solaris, as well as the cinematographer and editor um, and director, and I feel that this is his kind of weird fan edit of... Solaris only with James Cameron's money and Natasha McElhoney and, and uh, um, Viola Davis and George Clooney and, 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 and Jeremy Davies. Uh, But it feels like, Oh, the one thing that is wrong with the Tarkovsky version is that you never buy the relationship between him and his fake wife as a, as a romantic or even philosophical or spiritual Thing and oh, wow. that's the whole core of his version of the movie right. is to make now, his spiritual awakening through a mirror, a, a one way mirror of the memories of his wife. And he converts from an, a, a, a nihilistic atheist to an actual faith, you know, believer in God by the end of the film through the experience of seeing half his half of his dead wife. It's a very, it's funny that you brought up sunshine from an aesthetic point of view, but spiritually, I also believe that sunshine is a, is a conversation with faith and God, except for in sunshine, it's a secular finale. And Mm -hmm. in Solaris, it's a, it's an absolutely spiritual finale. They, they end totally the opposite, even though everybody dies in both of the films. Um, I find that, Interesting Because I've seen Sunshine a fair number of times as well. I, I find these critical science fiction films of our time, even though Solaris is on the surface a remake. And, and I say a remake because even Stanislaw Lem, the original author of the book Solaris, has said that uh, Soderbergh's film has nothing to do with this book at all. It's a remake of the Tarkovsky film. He also doesn't like the Tarkovsky film very much, but he will at least acknowledge that the Tarkovsky film is an adaptation of his book. And the Soderbergh film is an adaptation of the Tarkovsky film, just by <laughs> pruning
1: a ton of extra stuff out of, out of. Now, let me ask you film. this in the Tarkovsky version. I, I'm i baffled by the fact that they don't, you don't buy the relationship because I agree with you. That's the whole point of the movie. That's yeah, the core you of the movie. Just by, uh, buying their relationship as an offshoot, then you understand the other people on the ship and their relationship with their other person or whatever you know, the person that shows up for them. Even though you don't spend time, you get it because you understand Clooney's thing. So my question is: Is it a failing of Tarkovsky, or is it the performances, or is it the script that just doesn't? Well, the quite- Tarkovsky version, the wife element, is one of
2: many elements of how you perceive reality. And I I think the Solaris version is definitely keeps the, how do we understand our reality? And if you encounter an alien race, the alien race will have no concept of our reality. Forget about language barriers. The fact that you would use different senses to understand space time would totally prevent the proper communication between an alien species. And when, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but Chris Calvin, the character name is the same when he ends up on Solaris at the end of the Tarskovsky version. It's not like the Soderbergh version where they end up in this perfect version of heaven where they both get to start over as forgiven, like literally Christian sense of they're forgiven and everything is possible in this thing. And they can live with each other as complete holes. Um, the Tarkovsky version has Kelvin in a cottage in the middle of a planet that is an energy source. But the cottage, like the water is like – the running water is like above his head instead of coming out of the sink. It's like the alien race gets like so many fundamental things of like 3D space-time as human beings perceive it wrong that the cottage he lives in is totally dysfunctional and it doesn't work properly because it can't replicate heaven. It can't replicate – even a, like a space for him to exist outside of, you know, the planet taking on mass and crashing the ship uh, or the satellite into it. And I, I think the Tarkovsky one is far more philosophical and I feel the Soderberg one is more spiritual and emotional. I, even the, like the relationship is Ugh. so flat like and so mechanical in uh, the, the Tarkovsky version, whereas here it is so warm and it's so alive. When they're, you know, they're often nude in the flashbacks, like when they're eating noodles in bed or, or, uh, you know, they, they drop their clothes and embrace in the hallway or just the warm tones of their relationship, uh, the party that they meet at, like the sequence has this real sexy kineticism, uh, to it. Um, and certainly even when like times are not as good when she's avoiding him and she, um, and she's, Uh, you know, committing suicide and all that kind of stuff. It's all very raw and, and very emotional. The only sequence in their relationship that isn't deeply emotional is the sequence that's explaining the whole movie when they sit down with Dr. Jabarian's wife and, and, and they're in the dinner party and, and they're literally talking about what the movie is about, about whether the universe is just a conflation of, mathematical probability or whether there's actually, and everyone at the table um, feels that, that, you know, takes George Clooney's stance that, you know, it's just an inevitability and we perceive it. And it seems like long odds because it just happened, which is incidentally kind of what I believe. So I, I like that, but of course then the movie punishes that perception and actually rewards uh, uh, Reyes. res. Uh, point of view, uh, in the sense that George Clooney finally realizes that the, um, you know, the clear rational thinking is bunk, because you can only perceive things in the way that your brain chemistry allows. And yeah. then Jabarian says, well, maybe the human race is engineered, religion is engineered into the DNA of the human race. It's the movies literally saying that um, at the end when, when he literally, like touches God um, at the end of the film, which is the Solaris planet th- through the sun, the, 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 the serene looking child of, of Dr. Chabarian, who at one point is kind of like God when he's in his dream describing um, <laughs> like there are no, there are no right or wrong answers or even reasons. There are only choices, choices, which is the whole free will nature of that's what God has told. I am okay, I'm no I'm no Bible expert, but isn't that kind of like to one of the, the New Testament books where where he said, like this is the free will and, and this is what this is how I let you be evil to each other, I'm giving you free will. This is this is what Jabarian tells Clooney in that dream sequence. And when he touches the Jabarian's child, I mean it. It's it, it's it's framed exactly like the Sistine Chapel of God and Adam touching, you know, fingers <laughs> or whatever. Like it, this is <laughs> everything in this movie is so rigorously designed. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's it's
0: hearing all that too put into context is making me uh, appreciate right. this even more than something like Contact, which I happen to love. But at the same time, it's very surface level, and it's it's Zemeckis' version of, you know, science versus religion and free will and all those things put together. And even, you know, towards the end, too, with uh, David Morris taking on, you know, who's essentially an alien, taking on the uh, uh, version of Jodie Foster's father to communicate, which is – but it's done in the very Zemeckis – you know, idealized fashion. Whereas, you know, Soderbergh sort of allows a lot of breathing room for people to bring themselves into this movie. And certainly that, that dinner exchange that you were um, talking about is, is fascinating too. And in, in terms of what Soderbergh decides to do in that moment with sound, it just like decides to suddenly cut the sound entirely and focus on both of their facial reactions to each other, and that's something that he, he he toys with a lot too. Is just like dropping out the sound entirely, whether if it's you know in something like Haywire where oh we're not going to have any score for the fight scenes whatsoever, which I think is a brilliant choice. Or in contrast, too, is like you know during incredibly effective moments or where, where we're just looking at Solaris from a distance. have cliff martinez's haunting ambient mood piece of a score just says so much um you know so i mean there's there's just so much you're right going on in this film that speaks to me and makes me want to revisit over and over again Um, the last
2: thing i want to say about solaris with the mirror thing like, that's the big line. And that is actually from Lem's novel, that, you know, we 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 brave out of space. We put on spacesuits. We we invent all this technology to go out and explore the universe. But we don't want other planets. We want mirrors. So just you can write a whole thesis on this movie on what that actually means. In the flashbacks in Clooney's place, the mirror is missing from his – thing he looks at it at one point and the the glass of the mirror is gone in his flashbacks he she rea is a mirror of what he understands of what rea is. is and not yeah. only that there are two Rhea's. so there's there's even doppelgangers of that jeremy Dave, davie's like other uh thing is a mirror of himself that kills him uh, in the movie <laughs> and um, and the final sequence of them in heaven is a mirror of the opening sequence of him chopping his vegetables um you know at his at his counter top like there's there's so much in this movie that is um you know how we look at that and and, and it's 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 like it's 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 more rich than the coen brothers Sort of hat stuff. Although I love all of the Coen Brothers' hat stuff in Miller's Crossing, the Coen Brothers have a wonderful way of of mixing or not mixing, but just pounding a metaphor and and letting it take its own shape in the movie. I feel in Solaris, it's super deliberate and it's it's very it, it nicely clicks um, together uh, with everything in, the, in in the film. I, I just I love the design of of this movie in in every capacity both like how it uses its symbols how it lets things play out and the fact that he does it all in 90 minutes amazing
0: yeah it works as a mystery and yet it engages you on an emotional level and does everything right as i was like watching i was like there's there's rarely like any moment where i'm restless and i don't know i just i I grow to love this more and more and i could see why you would want to watch this 50 times
1: (laughs) and in a final thing no you said your final the last thing i already, already said the last thing i want to say is this so you know okay what here's one
2: more no last thing. i could talk about this movie forever but the ship's name the the satellite <laughs> orbiting solaris did you guys catch what the actual satellite's name is
1: hmm no
2: it's the prometheus so he's, oh. he's beat Ridley Scott to uh to naming uh, naming the ship Prometheus by uh, more than a decade. Um, when Jabarian is on the, uh, the 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 Skype or the recorded message that that um, uh, uh, Sulu uh, John Cho delivers to George Clooney at the beginning of the film, um, it's it, it's the Prometheus ship. I was looking really hard when I was watching Solaris this time. To, uh, to find out if you could see like any like markings or anything on the outside when the ship approaches to say it's Prometheus but all the communications and everything say the ship uh, is named Prometheus and of course you know the whole Prometheus of being punished um, and being brought back to life over and over and over again after having his guts eaten out by an evil uh, by an eagle because he was this close to God he was this close to the gods and you know and everything all the technology and fire and everything else like it's 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 actually quite wonderful, and it's probably even better use of that name and mythology than in the Ridley Scott film.
1: Are you guys big fans of uh, Jeremy Davies? Yes, yes, I'm, I'm okay
0: with him. I mean, he he is Jeremy Davies in pretty much everything. Yeah, uh, slash Charlie Manson. Yes,
1: I <laughs> totally. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jeremy Davies too. I like what Jeremy Davies does. Um rewatching this this time, I found it a little bit distracting because I was concentrating so hard on watching him like do his thing uh <laughs> i don't know I, he's definitely not necessarily out of place it's just
0: it's it's so uh, it's not like a, a, all meshes with the tone of the movie yeah it's no,
2: really it, do- it it's totally really- does it totally does because he is a copy of a copy and he doesn't fully understand everything because of his copiness. So he has to be um, slightly at odds with talking to people. This is the one time where his particular (laughs) mannerisms play perfectly with the character that he is, which is not really a person. He's he's a a weird uh, like almost outreach of the others because they don't know that he's the other. I love his description of I would explain what's going on here, but that really wouldn't explain what's going on here. <laughs> he has so many great lines in the movie and his weird talking with his hands is fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's very like kind of annoyingly cryptic to be in my opinion. I think uh it's fine. but and i agree like he's a copy of a he's not the real guy or whatever but he i mean uh natasha leone i mean she's pretty close close, or sorry yeah what not natasha leone i know who she is uh i don't know she's pretty close to the original person so to make him drastically different uh, is maybe a, a bit of a stretch but I don't know. It's fine. I, I'm just curious what you guys thought. I, I I find it a little bit distracting. Perhaps the only...
2: If you have to point out something that's not perfect with this movie, it is the overly on-the-nose, insane clown posse track of Riddlebox as, as Clooney is walking into uh, Jeremy Davies' room when he first gets on the station. <laughs> you know what I mean? It feels a little kind of over the top of 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 you know him listening mm-hmm. to that while 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 we're being introduced to the first character um, on the ship. Yeah. <laughs> we never she- talked about either of the women in the thing. I, I think the, the women in this sh- in 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 this movie are endlessly fascinating to me. This was the movie that I truly discovered, Viola Davis, who I love oh, yeah. forever. Um, because her physicist is is just when she describes her own symptoms of, of of what this is doing to her it's it's just wonderful yeah and uh of course i
0: remember uh natasha from truman show and how effective her looks are utilized in that movie just based on you know jim carrey with the uh with uh, the magazine covers and him trying to replicate what she looked like mm-hmm. And here, like, I mean, I don't I don't know if she's done anything recently as much, but I just uh, I remember like being really taken with her, her her performance in this, like not just like, oh, wow, she's, you know, jaw droppingly beautiful. It's just there's a fully dimensional character here with a lot of pathos and and sadness. And she does a great job and, you know, right on par with Clooney in this, I think. Yes. They captured
2: her, had her perfect moment of beauty and maturity, both in her physical appearance, but also in her acting ability. She's she's great in The yeah. Truman Show, and she's great in Ronan, but she, those things are, are nowhere near the level of performance right. that she's delivering in this movie. <laughs> this is such a notch up um, compared to the other two films that I've seen her in.
1: That moment where after he meets her and he follows her into the kitchen and she does that i think they do a shot together or something it's unbelievably sexy and yeah. she is 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 such an interesting looking woman like i i would never classify her as um like like when we do our shallow post every year and these are all the hot women in hollywood right she's now not the, she's, uh, not
2: sports swimsuit, right. Bland, she's not american the illustrated swimsuit land american attractiveness secrets.
1: right yeah walking down the runway model. She's just... No, but she has
2: that nobility from the high cheekbones,
1: right? Yeah. And just big eyes and a strong, long jaw. And just very, very striking. I'm a fan of big eyes.
0: So I
2: I don't know what they're engineered to recognize (laughs) big eyes as an attractive thing. It's the reason Uh anime and animation in general, why Wally, everything has big eyes because we respond to that that's I was so disappointed in the movie big eyes but that's okay <laughs> um there's yeah. a sequence in the movie where she discovers that uh chris kelvin uh totally like faked her out with his poetry knowledge and that's also plays into the how do we really know someone really well from her point of view but it's her point of view within his point of view, is kind of fascinating, but like the fact that she goes, I knew it you, that's the only line of poetry that, you know, but they (laughs) transcend that the relationship transcends the fact that, you know, that was kind of the end and it was deeply important to her. And yet um, like that, that's, he just happened to pull that out, like clutch hit (laughs) that in his pickup line with her at the party. um, I find that, Again, it's another one of these, the way this movie keeps folding over itself and and revealing to you in so many different ways what the movie's actually about.
0: Amen. Uh, (laughs) I gotta say, I I know Andrew used uh, the terms annoyingly cryptic and help but think of Lost. And uh, that's probably why Jeremy Uh Davis fit into that world very well but speaking of annoying um let's talk oceans 12 because uh
2: Oceans 12 we're gonna
0: (laughs) one of the more brief conversations despite the fact that we're in disagreement about it um, just because it's like, it really is subjective. I know Kurt finds this thing funny and amusing. I don't at all. Uh, I, I find it to, this, this is one of the few Soderbergh movies that I find to be a slog and it's disappointing because like, I, th- I, I think that, you know, he, he's a director who knows, um, and, you know, condense his stories really well, um, through, through most of his, Filmography is, you know, something like Solaris or Haywire, the Limey. Um, a lot of those movies are dense, but they're very tight at the same time. Ocean's 12 is just a bloated, I don't know, mess. I, I, I can't get into it whatsoever. Um, it, it, he took the heist story framework and tried to make some kind of meta comedy that I just, I don't know, I just find unfunny and, and rather dull. I mean, I, I do perk up a little bit with the, the uh, you know, Matt Damon try to, trying to fit in scene with Robbie Coltrane. That's kind of funny. Um, but for the most part, I just, I don't know. I, I'm an Ocean's Eleven guy through and through. And I don't know, Ocean's Twelve does nothing for me, which is sad to say.
1: Yeah, it's it's terrible. If you want to know my feelings on Oceans 12, just do a quick Google search. Type in Row 3, and then type in Oceans 12, and you'll get my extremely long, uh, with a lot of commentary afterwards, rewatch of Oceans 12. I did not rewatch it for this podcast. It's the one Soderbergh movie that I actively dislike. There are a couple other Soderbergh movies that I'm like, eh, they're all right, fine, whatever. This movie just pisses me off, almost on every level it's visually gross uh the script is terrible the actors are phoning it in on every level um yeah i i have no desire to ever rewatch this movie again it's it piss it kind of manipulates the audience in a bullshit way um on top of that and uh yeah i i do not like this movie at all it's it's up there with like aliens three and like <laughs> love these directors and fuck. What was he thinking with this? Go ahead, Kurt. Go ahead. Oh, Say boy. Your piece. Oh, boy. Here we go.
2: Here we go. Look, it's not in my nature to be mysterious, but I can't talk about it. And I can't talk about why <laughs> that's uh Brad Pitt's line to Matt Damon in the middle of the movie, which actually is the point that you don't get the first time you're watching. Uh, any of it, because that's the point where the heist actually happens outside of the frame. And that's, I think what pissed a lot of people off is that oceans 12 is a heist movie with no heist or at least no heist to speak of. Um, And I find that irrepressibly addictive to me is the fact that this oceans 12 is Soderbergh's first attempt with big studio money to make A movie for him like this normally Soderbergh's kind of like a like a Peter Weir or whatever he'll do one for him one for them back and forth and you know balancing he'll he'll make something like bubble or the girlfriend experience because that keeps his batteries charged and then you know run off and make oceans 13 because Warner Brothers wants a like a a hit Um, and oceans 12 is the weird middle where he was confident enough that he's like, I've got all of these people back with the addition of Catherine Zeta-Jones and, and then periphery characters like Eddie Izzard and Robbie Coltrane and and, and Albert Finney, uh, and I'm going to absolutely not deliver what I'm contractually obligated to deliver in this contract. And that, to me, that that vibe to it is... Not only is that hugely appealing to me, but it's actually spiritually what the original Ocean's Eleven, the Rat Pack movie was. That movie was an excuse for a lot of high-profile crossover celebrities, uh, like in, in which case a lot of them were singers and, and, and as much as actors. But they're, they're, they're that, that persona of what celebrity was in that era for them to just hang out in Vegas – And, oh, yeah, we're making this movie on the side, but we don't really have to take it too seriously. The fascinating thing for me with Ocean's Eleven, which I don't know if it's Soderbergh's first remake. He's done several. um, Solaris obviously being one of them. But with Ocean's Eleven, he basically – again, he's in that re-edit mode where he makes a movie and he's like, well, this is the thing that didn't work with the original Ocean's Eleven. I am going to actually make that heist work and I'm going to make the movie – I'm not going to make it loose. I'm going to make Ocean's Eleven tight as a drum. I'm going to make everything click. Uh, the characters will click. The plot will click. Everything. And Ocean's Twelve is his like, well, I did that. <laughs> and and they want a sequel. I mean have you ever – If either of you read Matt Singer's um, – There's this wonderful – I think Matt Singer, he writes for IndieWire. He's written for uh, other different things as freelance or whatever. But he had uh, an interpretation of Ocean's 12 many, many years ago, not when it first came out but not not long after, that Ocean's 12 is the ultimate meta-sequel movie. Like Terry Benedict going around and gathering the team is essentially Warner Brothers, the studio, saying, look – you guys owe me a big one, and I want it to be bigger, and I want interest. <laughs> you know, you have to make it bigger. You have to make it more. You've got to do everything that we liked about the first one, but it can't be the same as the first one, and it has to be bigger. And that's almost an impossible place to be, which is why most sequels suck ass. And this movie is like an actual uh, like riff on what it is to make sequels and i think gremlins 2 did it better yeah gremlins 2 did it and actually um Jurassic World also has an element in it and yes like like gremlins 2 it's funny i didn't even think of that one but that's a brilliant example uh you have a director that gets to be you know more their wild side with studio money contractually obligated to deliver a sequel but to make it weirder uh by emphasizing but in all fairness st- st- Uh, Soderbergh doesn't cheat that much. He does continue to develop all the characters. Um, He, he frames Oceans 12 uh, with the relationship of Brad Pitt's character to Catherine Zeta-Jones. And instead of the Clooney Tess uh, or, or Danny Tess thing from the first one. So he, he develops Rusty. He also shows Matt Damon's character Linus, stepping up into a leadership role they carry that over in the third one in a in a bigger way but here that's the whole thing of him with Robbie Coltrane of trying to to and they're hazing him essentially in that sequence for trying to further step up so these are things where Soderberg is is fully uh carrying things over and I I don't know I I I just love this movie for what it does. I love everything with Vincent Cassell in this movie, uh, who has probably more screen time than most of the other characters. Um, and that whole thing with the lasers is unbelievable to me. It's so well executed as an individual sequence. And again, in the Matt Singer, like theory of this movie, um, uh, Vincent Castell is the kind of the audience member that thinks he's better than, than the, then cause he's seen it all before. He knows exactly what they're capable of. And somehow Soderbergh, uh, the oceans team manages to pull off something that's totally different and is better than delivering a conventional. We just upped everything sequel. We don't get the heist. We get the explanation of the heist rather than, cause no one really what pays for an Ocean's Eleven movie for the heist it's nice that the heist is there to provide a clothesline but I love the fact that Spielberg is tightrope walking without, uh, without a rope like it's, it's totally fascinating to me endlessly fascinating
1: nobody pays to see an Ocean's movie for the heist correct <laughs> oh.
2: you don't think so you, no, you think I... they pay to see those characters pull a heist off but they don't pay yeah. for the heist
1: no, no, no! We, I time
2: with those characters. Yeah, I don't agree at all. Heist.
1: Yeah, I love watching the heist take place. How are you, it's it's sort of a Mission Impossible movie. Watching <laughs> all of this bit, all these bits come together with the balloons and the changing of the outfits, and we got to get in here and get out of there, and how they're fucking with Andy Garcia's character. Um, the heist almost is. I mean, not, no, not almost. I think the heist in Ocean's Eleven is just as fun as watching all these big name celebrities pull it off. Right, I, I agree. I, yeah, I mean the heist so, is the movie. Well, clearly,
2: I, mean. I have no idea what a normal audience wants from a movie <laughs> because <this> is, <laughs> because. That is the last thing I want. Okay. My history with oceans 12 is I was fine with oceans 11. It's tight. I love the editing. I love the rhythms. I've seen them all in oceans 10, which is out of sight, you know, like he's done all these things before, but it's nice to see him do this in this glossy kind of really glossy package. And my wife who loves oceans 11, like really, really deeply loves that movie. And I wasn't even interested in seeing Oceans 12. And I'm like, I don't want to see it again. And she's like, no, no, no. We got to go see it. Absolutely. She dragged me kicking and screaming to Oceans 11. And she came wow. out of that movie so angry with that movie. And I Ocean's came out strong, of that movie awful. so energized with not being delivered what I expected it was. She was angry because it wasn't expected. I was happy that it wasn't that it wasn't what I was expecting. And I don't dislike Oceans 11. I quite like it very much. But... I, I just didn't want to see it again. And I find Oceans 13, uh, which feels like the movie that the studio wanted with Oceans 12. Um, there's lots of things I like in Oceans 13, but I find it to be quite boring uh, c- compared to Oceans 12, which is a full-on it's fine. experiment. It's fine. It looks fine. pretty. It's really pretty yeah. looking, but the heist is not interesting to me. Um you know, we're just doing this one more time. Um Yeah, it, it's 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 fine. And much like I find the first one is fine, but the second one is where it's at. Everything like they, I, I just if I never see eleven or thirteen again, I, I won't be too far put out. But I could watch twelve all the time, all the time. I I, I put a list up on social media a little while ago on the top. Ten comedies (laughs) of the last fifteen years, and 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 Soderbergh is number ten and number one, and number ten is Ocean's Twelve. We'll get to number one. What I think is the funniest movie in the last fifteen years. (laughs) Further along in this conversation, so
1: we don't have to dwell on it. But I I I I, I feel
2: people, you have to look past your own expectations. I think with with Ocean's, and you have to like true experimentation experimentation doesn't get to happen very much at this budget or this
1: talent level yeah like but you know what September. i'll watch uh, i'll watch full frontal in that case and get a ton of enjoyment out of it uh this is just kind of deliberately pissing people off these guys yes. went to europe and had fun <laughs> And, I like how Kirk gets excited. Um, that's what
2: that is. So exactly what it so is. So
1: why? Well, that's so <laughs> weird. That that's you would get enjoyment out of that because as a film, like if you, I don't know, I, everything. Every time I review a film, whatever it is, whatever we're talking about, all of the reasons I might like X film is why I hate this movie. Uh, what's going on behind the scenes about like uh uh, uh one for him, one for them. I don't know that I cared that much about it. I mean, we'll, we can get into it a little bit with Bubble, but uh, I'm more interested in my experience and my my opinion of the craft of the film. And the craft in this is so uh, just... I, it, it's so bland and flat and kind of annoying and pisses me off yeah. when I'm watching it um, that it, I don't really look for what's going on behind the scenes other than what's going on behind the scenes is all these guys got to go to Europe for a couple months and phone in a performance while they partied it up. I don't think anyone's phoning it in. They may all be (laughs) so the frame is crowded, but nobody's phoning this in. Yes, they are. They totally are compared to the first one. Matt Damon is so young. Matt Damon is so good in Ocean's Eleven. There's the sequence where Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven is telling Matt Damon, "These are all the things you have to do. Don't look up. Don't look down. Stare at him. You have to be funny, but not memorable. He has to like you and then forget you. Like all that's this actually stuff.
2: the speech and in
1: Scandalous, by the way. <laughs> and then when he follows through with that in his performance, it's amazing. Uh, like it's such a, it's so compelling to watch all of these things come together. And in this one. It, Again, I didn't rewatch 12, and I'm not going to. Um, it's just – it's. The, I remember all of the dialogue just being I, – I can't believe you guys are trying to sell me this because it's just not working. It's flat. It's not funny. It's not witty. Yeah. It's not – it's just – totally flatline. So.
2: Wow. I, I think that is all in the eye of the beholder because Apparently. I think that they, Damon has a huge arc in this movie. He, he comes up, he's asking them to step up the whole time. Right? And so every, by the time you've watched the movie more than once, you know that before the movie starts, they've already or at least, well, very early on in the movie, they've already done the heist that's going to bail them out. They've already won before the game has started. And so the whole movie is a charade to hide the fact that they've already won. And it's just going through the motions. So that's the reason why it's like when you've, when you've beat the, uh, when you've, when you're playing baseball or hockey or soccer or whatever, and you, you have like 20 points above the other team you're like okay fine let some of the other people come out and give them some experience in the field um because we've already won and that's what Rusty and Ocean are doing with Linus all throughout the movie when they bring him to Robbie Coltrane and Hazem when they all get arrested except for um Don Cheadle and and um Scott Cannon and then they you know, he has to be like who died and made you ocean or whatever. He, he has to be the leader for a bit. He comes up with the whole Julia Roberts scheme, which amazingly somehow hasn't come up in this conversation. Usually what breaks everybody from the movie anyway. And they let him play that out, even though it's all utterly without consequence. And that is what's fascinating to me is that, you don't realize when you're watching the movie that everything is without consequence, but really in all the oceans movies, they're all always without consequence. You know, they're going to win in these movies. (laughs) There's never any question that they're going to win. So this movie actually plays with you as the audience. It's like a great magician's trick. And who doesn't like a great magician's trick? This is fascinating. It's it's movie making sleight of hand. Just because you've been fooled, it doesn't mean you go and you get pissed off at the magician. You paid to see the magician. It's not a very entertaining magic act. No, it's a four-top. oh maybe you you might be able to argue that I, I disagree with that
1: wholeheartedly, but um I think it's a pop eh. out. And I think there's a there's a line in the movie Brad Pitt says to Clooney's character, he says Orfair. we're forcing it. Yeah. Yep. And Clooney says, yeah, we're forcing it. It's That's the movie in a fucking nutshell. right? But
2: that's there. what they're commenting on sequels, right? Because when they're when he says that, that's when they're doing a heist. The one heist that's in the movie is the the one where they change the pylon heights to, to right. get a sight line right, into right, the, right. the thing. And they're like, yeah, well, we can't do this. This isn't going to make us any money. Um, that's actually right at the point where where they steal the Fabergé egg and and, and and actually lure Vincent Cassell into the game. That's the point, because like, they realize yeah. they're forcing this.
0: Yeah, I don't know why. It, I find it annoying in this where it gets ridiculously meta, like the Julia Roberts moment, where it's something like the opening of um, The Player, where Fred Ward is you know talking or describing the uh, Touch of Evil tracking shot and how brilliant it is and how long it is. And of course <laughs> the opening of the player is a long tracking shot. And that to me is endearing and awesome. Whereas in here it's just
2: kind of obnoxious. Well, I don't know well, why. Well, yeah. Julia Roberts thing. The big joke in the player is that every movie will star Julia Roberts <laughs> and Bruce Willis. And, and the final shot of the player is the movie that they've made with Bruce Willis and Julia Roberts. I love Bruce Willis's cameo in Ocean's Twelve because if you watch, everyone that comes up to him uh, says, "I tells Bruce Willis when they figured out the answer to the sixth sense, which is what this movie's doing." And and and, and Bruce Willis is like, "Well, if everybody figured it out before the movie's over, how did the movie make five hundred and something million dollars worldwide or whatever?" Like that's everybody's literally coming up and telling them what nobody sees when they're watching. Ocean's 12, like there are there's so much stuff like that in this movie it's it's, it's really um, I don't know, uh, the whole bit when uh, Matt Damon is coaching Julia Roberts and 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 she says uh, Julia Roberts says Julia Roberts wasn't even, she, he says just think Four Weddings and a Funeral and Julia Roberts says, Julia Roberts wasn't in Four Weddings and a Funeral and then Matt Damon goes I wasn't in Four Weddings and a Funeral that is fucking funny to me the way that joke just plays and that jazz kind of it, – it's the illusion of jazz when everything is utterly tightly scripted. That's fascinating to me um, and that's what all the ocean movies are. They have this illusion of free flow and, and react on the fly when they're not. They're utterly constructed. And that is interesting to me because Soderbergh does free flow on the fly kind of movies. And he does utterly constructed movies. And this is him having his cake and eating it, too. And I love it.
1: You Enjoy got the your corner cake. piece. Yeah, you got yeah. the corner piece. I think we got was one of those ones in the middle without all the frosting.
0: Right. Um, let's move on. And uh, we'll. Because I don't know what you guys think of the next one we're going to talk about. And it's it's an interesting one because I remember seeing it to a mostly empty uh, art house theater in Chicago. And it is a bubble from 2005. Um, and it was also,
2: it might be one of the f- earliest examples of a movie released simultaneously. It is. It's the canonical Magnolia Pictures, Mark Cuban's character. Company. I think it's they, the first that was first experiment. I yeah. don't know why they chose to do it with this movie right uh, but um that w- this this is kind of its footnote in history is that it was the first true day and date theatrical video d v d release
0: yeah it's it's a again it's a very interesting, very short experiment um uh, uh seventy one uh, minutes yeah um and a score done by somebody other than Cliff Martinez,
2: too. a Robert Pollard oh, of the cool. band. Every, everyone in this movie is the, in that Ohio yeah. region where the movie was set. He got everyone, including the, the guy to do the music.
0: <laughs> yeah, non-actors and uh, a very bare-bones, streamlined uh, murder mystery plot of sorts. Um, interesting, too, looking at Wikipedia, how there was more of an explanation as to um, why... The murder took place in a deleted scene, um which kind of I don't know how I would feel about that explanation being in there or not,
2: but it's in the film it's in the film with the two with the the cat scale shots the uh... two like that that scene that you're talking about is not in the film, but oh. the message that that scene was supposed to convey is okay. implicitly in the film with those two like Halo of God, blue light shots on the lead actress's face. Uh, okay. okay, Yeah. Just, he's like, oh, I don't want to like come right out. And right. Say it like at the end of psycho or whatever. Um, yeah. So but the movie had
0: uh, no script and was improvised, uh, had an that outline like of so. course, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really good. I, I, it's not one that I like get excited to revisit or anything but um in terms of just a low key experiment you know and kind of unassuming and just deciding you know what i want to do this in a, you know very simple fashion and just have these non actors um work together in in the small town and see what becomes of it i think it's i think it's overall a successful experiment even though it's not like you know it's it's not on par with something like Schizopolis for me in terms of something I would love to revisit for pleasure's sake. I just I give him props again for his audacity in putting this whole thing together, and I think it's a good film overall.
1: Yeah i I was kind of not not really looking forward to rewatching this movie. I've held on to the DVD all of these years, thinking I'm going to rewatch this someday, and I never. Really wanted to, and even for this podcast, uh, I don't really want to watch yeah. Bubble. I remember it, fi- I remember the movie being fine, and I know what it is. Like, it's so simple that it's all pretty clear in my head. That said, so I did rewatch it, and I found myself enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. I actually got into the characters a little bit deeper than I thought I would, Uh, uh, particularly the main, the the main lady, um, the red haired lady. Um, Mm -hmm. it's fun to watch her thinking. (laughs) Um, yeah, she has all these reaction shots to things that are going on around her and you sort of build up to who she is and, and, what her life is kind of. And there's this weird, really calm, uh, like, like uh, quiet intrigue, uh, or, or, or calm excitement that I get. And it's hard to e- explain exactly because the movie is very slow and calculated and you're more interested maybe in, in the, the production process. Um, but i don't I don't know I feel like there's this static electricity charge that's building up while you're watching everything um, It's not super exciting it's not a Hitchcockian bomb about to explode or anything like that. It's more just um, there's something not right about this little town and these these three characters and on rewatch, I found it very interesting and very quietly exciting to watch this stuff build up to what it ultimately becomes. And when you throw on the fact that these people aren't actors, I looked on the IMDb. They've never done anything else since. Um, Yeah. it's, It's pretty amazing what, Soderbergh is able to capture from them maybe it's in the editing maybe he struck gold like not I mean not that these guys are Oscar winners or anything like that like the kid is not very good Um, but there's something captivating in these performances and this script as simple as it is that really was I was just absolutely compelled uh, I found the whole story really compelling as I was watching it, even though I've seen it and I know what's going to happen and who did what. um, This time around, I I found it a lot more exciting than I thought I was going to. Um, I was able to put the distraction of the production aside and just watch it for the movie it is. And uh, it's pretty great. Well, this was my
2: first experience with the movie so in preparation for this podcast i got to watch two soderbergh movies that i had never seen before this and the good german uh i just skipped them when they were out in the in the theater so i I vaguely knew the story behind bubble like the business side of bubble but i had no idea what the plot or anything uh was the 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 thing that struck me the strangest when i started watching the movie is that it's it's filmed in scope (laughs) I mean, if you're going to do this yeah. little tiny movie with non-actors for like a million bucks in the middle of Ohio, why would you shoot it in 2.35 to one? Like that's, I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. But um, but I, I guess it's kind of interesting that it's hmm. widescreen. Um, and uh, uh, two, uh, watching it, it struck me as like, the prequel to the informant it, it, it really okay it's not a corporate like business thing or whatever but it's it's clearly someone with some issues that under most circumstances can function just fine but if you have just that right set of circumstances um they behave in a totally unexpected uh, fashion and are are stuck in that loop that they're that they're in and that's kind of like when i was watching the movie i had no idea where it was going the whole time i had no idea like i got the idea that (coughs) the main woman was jealous that she was losing her best friend i mean it's quite telegraphed in that sense to this new person that's working in the doll factory uh but i i really didn't know like there were a lot of bonafide surprises plotting surprises for me in this movie, uh, which I which I really enjoyed the experience of watching it uh, for the first time, but I also feel that the movie's pretty straightforward with its imagery. Even if I didn't know where it was going to go, like the idea that these people are in poverty and that they're they're never going to leave, um, and that they're literally injecting goop to make faceless objects and paint them into some semblance of a life (laughs) that's it's a pretty angry commentary on kind of the poverty side of the United States Mm. it's 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 a it's a pretty ugly portrait and I I don't I also find it kind of ugly that you know Soderbergh has kind of gone in and said I'm gonna find non-actors and I'm gonna shoot this thing as a commentary on them uh, it's uh, the movie makes my skin crawl a little bit when I'm watching. I mean, it's not a bad movie. It's perfectly great at what it does. it, it, it but it, it, it's, ugh, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's, it, I feel like, and maybe I'm completely wrong because I feel like so, I too ironic for this, but I feel like it's his Oh brother. Where art thou? And I don't mean <laughs> oh brother. Where art thou? I mean, in Sullivan's travels, the novel, that Sullivan is trying to write is the novel, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I feel like that bubble is kind of that for Soderbergh. I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Hmm. I, I just think
0: it's interesting too, because I remember at the time hearing that he was going to make several. Yeah, uh, like
2: half a dozen of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like it just, never happened.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I was like, oh, that's cool. Maybe he'll go to different do these really simple low-key stories and, you know, capture whatever in, that he's in at the time. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to me, too, because, like, I, I I visited a part of Pennsylvania that had people like this, that, you know, there was a dilapidated factory and people out of work and, uh, you know, just hanging out in
2: bars and just... Eating things. fast food all day. <laughs> yep, exactly. Always and that's those cups, like those... Soft drink. Yep, yep. exactly. Big gulps and all yep. that
0: stuff. And this, yeah, this movie uh, captures that vibe and that environment really well. Now, now, were you just sort of uneasy and thinking like people to, to just make a movie his way or?
2: Uh, yeah, in the sense that, you know, here's a, a millionaire between hyper celebrity movies like between the oceans films or whatever that he made this. And, um, you know, he's, he's going to go in and he's gonna, he's going to do this. And I, I don't mind that he's doing it. I just find it. It's one thing if you were like, and I'm not saying people are entitled to do this or that, or not entitled to do this and that, but it's one thing if you're like a filmmaker and you're, you know, that's where you grew up and you're like, I want to tell a story with, with this time and place I'm going to go in and do it. It's, it's another thing to say, I have, you know, I'm, I need to go and, and use poverty to recharge my creative batteries. I'm not knocking Soderbergh. I love the guy to death. I, 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 hope he makes, I hope he never retires no matter how many times he says it, but there is something that makes me a little bit uneasy with, uh, with, this story. I don't think that Soderbergh is ever truly empathetic <laughs> with any of these characters. It's more of like an, a mic. It's one thing that is not often in Soderbergh's movies, except for maybe Schizopolis, where he's really like putting things insect like under a microscope. And to do this with kind of poverty in the middle of the US, you know, right before the whole. United States
1: crashed. <laughs> it's just it's just a weird set of timing for things. interesting and I, I, I the fact that they work hmm. in this doll factory, like you mentioned they're they're making these sort of clones of people, just <laughs> uh, you know factory farming people sort of in a way. I don't I, it could have been anything. they could have been working in an auto factory. They could have been putting together pajamas for old men. I don't know. The fact that they're making these dolls, and they spend a little bit of time, at least in the beginning, focusing on these dolls. I I don't know exactly if it's supposed to mean something, but in well, terms sure of putting is. something interesting together on screen, well, it's, it's great. Both. It's great. I mean, I mean the, it's...
2: All it's, the whole symbol of these kind of endless, faceless, slightly depressing looking things with the semblance of a, an illusion of humanity grafted onto them. Like, it's kind of a – if you're using that as a metaphor of what you think Middle America is, it's kind of a disturbing one.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: You're saying, Especially for a millionaire who plays with George Clooney in his house in Italy, you know, as yeah. a fun romp. You're saying you know it's I mean? kind of a
1: dick move. To I make that's a movie what like I'm this, saying,
2: so. <laughs> and it's too bad because I don't even know if any of that was considered. Maybe you know, maybe that's just a weird thing. You can't write your own history; you can only live it, and then other people will fashion a narrative around your career or your time on earth or whatever i just I, I feel that that's a very uncomfortably unfortunate series of events that you know it's sure not intended right? i like just... it's he hired another guy to come up with the scenario it's not like he's writing this and everything
1: but it's still kind of yeah. hmm. And I, I don't know, I imagine those people were pretty excited to have this oh, yeah.
2: Absolutely. film yeah.
1: crew in their town. And they got Like to... a real like high-profile filmmaker, and he's making a serious drama,
2: and I mean, he, he lets them shine, he lets those actors, yeah. they're all great, and, and they all do exactly as if they were full, bonafide movie stars, like they all pull it off. Like, the, the, the sure project itself this day, is
1: impressively seamless. To this day, I'm sure those people say, look at this movie I was in. Yep, yep. <laughs> Yeah. And it's good. It is a good, I it is I mean, very it's simple yeah. and, and it's what it is, of, but...
2: I kind of wish the 75-minute the film would come back. I like that. It's a good runtime. I agree. Not all movies need to be 90. Certainly not all movies need to be 130, which is, seems to be the blockbuster standard time limit <laughs> these days. So when you turn in a nice, you know, back in the 30s and 40s and even early fifties films routinely came in at under eighty minutes, and that was not a problem for anyone. Yeah, <laughs> a now, great ninety
0: segue. seems to be the standard.
2: <laughs> I liked Trainwreck, but it, it didn't have to be one hundred and twenty. Oh no! I, this is my chief. You will find in my top comedies of the uh, of of the last fifteen years, you will find nothing by Judd Apatow <laughs> even close to that fucking list. Um, because I, his movies are fine; they're funny. They're just. Ridiculously yeah. bloated, all of them. Even his best one, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, is bloated beyond belief. Um,
1: yeah. Oh, You had such a great segue there, talking about films of the 30s and 40s.
0: Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, here we go. Yeah, we got about f- four, possibly five more to go.
1: Along the same like I I feel this would be a huge walkout for people in the theaters when this played uh, in 2006. Um, Very much along the same same lines of experimentation, where this is absolutely uh, trying to recapture the the film noir um, of yesteryear, uh, filming it in black and white, filming it in the it's not one to one aspect ratio, but whatever the square aspect aspect ratio is, the Kelly Reichart aspect ratio um, and trying to put together a story that's of the time and all of the actors are playing it of the time and it's kind of a simple war movie, there's a little bit of a, uh, the femme fatale in there, there's a little bit of mystery involved, murder mystery stuff going on and um, at the same time, he tries to inject all of this great, uh, like political and underground, uh, social economics of post war Europe, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Like who is actually the villain here at this point? It's not necessarily the Nazis anymore. It's the good guys are kind of the bad guys now. Um, and, Again along with along the same lines of bubble, he's absolutely experimenting here. Sure he brings back Clooney and he brings in Kate Blanchett and all of these other big name stars, but he's kind of playing with them and trying to direct them as pre like what like what when does method acting really come so into not to the, what not to the 70s? well you could late argue 70s. someone like uh marlon brando kind of right you know, on the waterfront late 50s yeah and even then that didn't really catch on until on. the 70s yeah so um trying to take all of these highly trained and experienced actors and put them in, in that uh in those shoes or whatever <laughs> i don't know that it it totally works i think to be honest, I think Tobey Maguire is the best performance in this movie for what the movie is trying to be. Hmm. Um, but I, I really, really like this movie. I find after the first maybe twenty minutes of like sort of acclimating yourself and getting um, just sort of feeling your way and understanding what the movie is, and then start to just get into the movie, get into the plot and watch the characters and the actors do their thing. I actually find it pretty compelling. Um there yeah. are some things I would have done personally to make it a little bit more authentic if that's what he was going for. Uh particularly language. Like I'm Oh, see, see, I'm no prude. I don't fucking care I, I about swearing. I completely swearing
2: disagree stuff, with you on this, um if I may. Um this was a first-time watch for me. I never saw it in the theaters, so um, it was a delight. Like it's like new Soderbergh, right? The same with Bubble for me. Um, and I and I think the movie's fine, but I think it was right in the mission statement of the movie would be like, look, there was a haze code when these movies were made in the forties. Like really, it's a mashup of the Third Man and Casablanca. Like really, that's, is what absolutely is. that's exactly. And, right. um, and he's like, well, yeah, but there were rules about how you could make a movie. You couldn't put nudity. You couldn't have swearing and you couldn't just have this certain type of intensity like of the modern world, like a post 21st century world. So he's like, well, what if I use the lenses, the camera mounts, the framing, I film it, all the editing and, and everything will look like that era, but I will let the actors act like
1: normal like i will give them i don't want to be misunderstood i I, absolutely i agree with you i'm just saying if he was trying to which i think you're right i don't think he was trying to but if you're trying to recreate exactly make a movie from the 40s you can't have that stuff in there so i agree with you i like having all all of that stuff i mean there's a in the first five minutes, like, isn't there a doggy-style fucking yeah, thing going on? Yeah, and the, <laughs> I mean, the movie
2: clearly makes <laughs> makes it known early that it's going to do d- things differently than what it's in me. That's what I love about S- Soderbergh. He has an eye to the past, but he's like, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do in the movie. There's going to be a, a reason for me not to just slavishly recreate something. Uh, there's going to be a reason for me to... Um, to do what I do. And there's an interesting challenge, which I believe he also has with the Nick uh, is the idea that he's all the actors and all the interiors are fine, but he just does not have the budget, even though this is a Warner brothers movie because it's a weird movie. He can't like, you know, get a hundred million dollars to make this movie. So he has the, the thing of like all these like open squares and big spaces that these characters would be in has to all be done with stock footage. So he's, It's kind of like him recreating. When he recreates New York in the Nick, he doesn't even bother with wide shots. He's like, "Eh, you'll understand that we're in 1901 New York. Mm -hmm. All I need is some building exteriors. I don't need to show you a CGI wide shot of what New York would look like in that period. And I mean, well, he does use stock footage in this movie, which I like. um, But it's a challenge for him to integrate the stock footage exteriors and like things like Stalin and, and, and Winston Churchill and, and, and whatnot, you know, all this footage with the actual drama of the film, I think he does a really good job with it. I just feel the film fails because none of the actors are great in the movie. And and I don't know what happened. They they just can't act. they, They couldn't make that bridge of modern style and old style work. Like, I don't, I'm not sure who Kate Blanchett is supposed to be doing. It was like a, a little bit of Marlene Dietrich, a little bit of Greta Garbo, but it's not good. Like I, Blanchett I love to death, but every now and again she just sucks. And <laughs> she sucks in this movie. And if she sucks, the whole movie falls apart. She is the movie. <laughs> Like, she's not the lead character, but she's the Harry Lyme character, in essence, of the movie, or at least her story is what Harry Lime is in in The Third Man, and she's also the Ingrid Bergman character from Casablanca, and so you, you have to buy the mystery, and you've got to buy the honesty, and she fails, I think, at – both and Clooney does too. Yeah. I, I agree with you, Andrew, I, in that the best role in this movie is Toby Maguire because you have no analog for what he's supposed to be.
1: Um, I don't totally mind yeah. Blanchett. I think I think Clooney is completely miscast. Yeah, but he, he, can, he he just can't he, help he being Clooney. Modern. It just yeah, he took work. the words right out
0: of my mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I was disappointed in the acting. I gotta say. I mean, it, it is weird to to think that Toby McGuire out does Kate Blanchett and George Clooney. Um and that's something that was like wow that 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 is a complete surprise. Yeah. Um, and and some of the dialogue too I was just I mean I I definitely am not a prudent. I don't I I didn't mind shit in world at all. Some but some of the some of it was like you know, you don't fucking know what you're fucking talking like. Just, it was a little bit much (laughs) excessively. At least through Tobey Maguire, I think. But that was just,
2: that was kind of done away with after a little while there. So, um... I'll tell you who also is awesome in this movie. Leland Orser is Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. He's He's really great, because he's not playing the Leland Orser character. Right. He's right, like this exactly. calm, controlled dude, and, and he's great to watch. I, I really had a lot of fun with him.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really mixed on this one. I I liked it, but not as much as I'd hoped to, because I know this
2: I, I will say it's better than its reputation. Cause, oh yes. It's, it's, a, it's a fine movie. It just yeah. I understand why it failed. Not just that that people didn't want a 1.33 to 1 black and white throwback to Casablanca you just watch Casablanca if you want that but yeah. but but i but i in so far that even if they're willing to take the chance at that the acting is off putting and and it's um there, there's just something that it's like it's like the uncanny valley of acting you you, you understand what it's supposed to be doing and attempting, but the fact that it's too close to one thing and too close to another thing, and not either of those things, it's just it's just weird and hard to take, and it makes your skin crawl a bit. Yeah, makes- and the final the
0: final reveal with with Blanchett at the end, I I, I just kind of shrug it off and went oh, okay, as opposed to like oh damn, mm-hmm. or you know like have a real. You know, visceral response to it or something. It's more of just like, oh, well. I mean, it, it's definitely like I understand. You know, the like you were talking about, Andrew, like just sort of the uh, the, the the politics, the, the just sort of um, again, sort of the gray area of who's good and who's bad. <laughs> um, I, I, I like that throughout the throughout the film, and you know, again, I'm I'm actually a huge fan of of noir and having. recently seen the third man on the big screen it's just you know that just trumps everything when it comes to this type of film
2: and and this movie was actively trying to not be the romantic kind of fable that casablanca is it's like no we're gonna give it to you really how it was but isn't that what the third man does complete with utterly downer ending of you know what i mean so like it, it just feels like it's an interesting idea, but was there really space for him to make this movie? You know, as as a as a technical challenge of he's got to be cinematographer with weird lenses that no longer are made or used and he doesn't have any camera movements that would not be used. Like he there's a rigorous formality to not do anything with the camera that would be physically not possible back in that era of movie making that of course, 50 years of technology and, and, and you know the, the part of the Oscars they never televise, all the technical awards from advancing movie-making possibilities, uh, have all happened, and he's actively giving himself artistic constraints for the movie. And I'm sure to make this movie must have been super awesome to have to try and do all these things it's like the Lars von Trier like five obstructions (laughs) thing you know like where where you you you, you've got to do this and you can't do this and you can't do this and can't do this like that's interesting from an artist and again as a recharge their batteries kind of way it's it's good but you know ultimately do you really want to watch a a downer Casablanca or a modernist third man like both of those movies are are so much of their time and place.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with some of that. On the other hand, I'd actually like to see him try again, or somebody else try again. Like Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, I think, was you know, trying to capture that essence as well. And there are things that work though in the good German. I like so, you've got the, the screen wipes or whatever that were reminiscent of the time, <laughs> but, but before that, the way the way a scene would end like with people just looking at each other, um, or or some kind of strange one-liner or whatever. Like I there just was some. Off they were still kind of speaking, I kind of I kind of like that. It, I did too. You have yeah. to really pay attention for those moments, yep. oh, but they show those. up, and it's just it. You just go, whoa, yeah, he fucking nailed that moment. Um, in in terms of what he was trying to do with recapturing the forties or whatever. Oh, it's um, clear he loves
0: those movies, yeah, without a doubt. I,
1: I, I think from a direct—I mean, I don't know—from a direction standpoint, I think it works pretty well. I gotta say though, like, this is one of the few Soderbergh movies where pacing was actually an
0: issue.
2: I, yeah, yeah, I felt a little snappy, yeah. but I but agree. then again, it's it's trying to. But I—I I mean, again, I don't know what the runtime of the good German was but it it did certainly feel longer i'd have to look at the run times of um casablanca and and whatnot but where were they was is casablanca an hour and 45 minutes
1: no i, don't I think, think so i, I think feel it's around there movies are shorter hmm. yeah i thought casablanca was shorter but maybe not this is 105 yeah
2: that's that's a hunt that's sorry it's an hour and 45 minutes that's
0: oh wow Casablanca is an hour and 43
2: minutes okay yeah. so he's right on bang on the runtime yeah. um yeah
1: I mean clearly the poster guy decided you know Casablanca, Casablanca. Uh, okay it's been a long time since I've seen Casablanca but Casablanca might have some pacing issues too no? uh, I
2: don't know. I don't know. You know why Casablanca doesn't have pacing issues? Because I always buy the yeah. relationship between yeah, you're invested yeah. and Bergman, totally. and I just can't I fathom the relationship between Clooney or, or Clooney's character and Kate Blanchett's character, yeah. and and I yeah. guess yeah, there's just something that just doesn't make it completely. Work. I mean, it's the same structure. Like they knew each other before the war. They went off. They became different people based on their experiences of knowing each other before the war. Now they've met, you know, after the war, or like late in the war, and and they have to reconcile where they are now and and decide. And then, of course, they don't end up with each other. It's the same structure as Casablanca. But because I don't buy the chemistry, um, it's the same way with. Uh, um, I mean, Kate Blanchett. I mean, not that. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull doesn't have a, a laundry list of other problems. But one of the biggest problems with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is that Kate Blanchett is terrible as the Russian. Yeah. And it's too bad because, I mean, if you watch so many movies where she is unbelievably great, it's just that, you know, not every performance of hers right. is a winner. And she can and pull unfortunately off- this movie got saddled with a not winning performance and Clooney's no better. She can pull off Catherine Hepburn. In, in the aviator so well yeah and so whatever so surprised giving in the life aquatic with steve zisso is 10 times kinds of awesome yeah um, she's so great in that movie and 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 she's standing out in a sea of actors in that movie and she still is amazing um and you know everything like from blockbusters to um uh to small art films she's she's really solid she's one of the great actor actors that we have
1: but you know every now and again you you, you get a bum performance she's of one end. of those actresses where you go oh kate blanchett's in this well i'm yeah. going i'm going i don't even care what the rest of the movie is so i'm going kind of like george clooney eh andrew Kind of like george clooney <laughs> or brad pitt Yeah. Yeah. Every Now and again. Well, and Brad
2: Pitt had a whole run in the nineties where he was like one mediocre flat performance after another, and then somehow figured out not to do whatever he was doing. And then (laughs) has been consistent since then of putting in pretty good performances. Um, But I, whatever, I mean, her batting average is so much higher than almost anyone else on the planet. I'm, I'm certainly not going to hold her to task for this. I just, There was just some unfortunate things that are probably beyond anyone's control that derailed this from being, you know, it's like the artist or whatever, you know, like whatever. Take your pick of what black and white nostalgia piece with a modern twist. Um, You know, but I mean, the weird thing about the good German theatrically is that it wasn't just that people saw it and said it was no good. Like nobody saw it. Like people just didn't even take the chance on it. You'd think with the Casablanca poster and the, the two leads, you'd think it would make some money, but it, it like, I don't know what it made, like $4 million worldwide or something. Like it really didn't, Uh... nobody wanted this movie. Sad, but true.
0: You know, I'm ready to jump ahead. Uh, Speaking of great performances, and possibly one of the very best of 2009,
2: was by an actor by the name of Matt Damon. Yeah, and if you'll allow me, you guys talked about walkouts for, was it Ocean's 12 or Bubble that had the walkouts? Uh, I had for Solaris, for me. For Solaris, with Clooney. Yeah. And I remember because I saw the assassination of Jesse James with Andrew, and not that our theater was packed, but we had a fair bit of walkouts with Brad Pitt. I know it's not Soderbergh, but Laura Jane and I saw The Informant, which is the movie that you alluded to, and Mm -hmm. there were 10 of us in the audience when the movie started. And there were two of us, that is Mm -hmm. me and my wife, in the audience when the movie ended. That means the entire theater, not that it was packed, but every single audience member, except for us, had walked out of this movie by the end. And if wow. you're a long-time Cinecast listener, uh you will have heard me said that this is the best performance of 2009, hands down. It's Matt Damon's best performance of his oh, entire yeah. career. And I... It certainly made the argument on social media the other day, and I might elaborate on it further in a, in a longer post that the informant is the funniest movie of the, lo- like the smartest funny movie in the last 15 years. Like I just, I can't, this thing, I don't even know. It's a miracle that this thing exists. <laughs> and clearly it's a miracle that most people don't care about in the same way that they didn't care about Solaris. Um, it's definitely Were an experimental. You really film. in love with it the first time you saw it? Yes. Yes. Well, like I said, when we were talking about the end of the year performances or whatever, I, I was like I was completely on board when I saw this movie. I I was like, this was like this is the type of the reason why I go to the movies to see stuff like this.
0: I was I was rather perplexed by both the um the the narration and the score. Like it wasn't bad. I wasn't like, oh, that's really grating and you know, kind of obnoxious. I wasn't thinking that at all. It was just like that is crazy. Like, it's just so inundated with both of that. Both
2: the, 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 the you know, the, the old school mystery yeah, kind well, of score. Matt Damon thinks he's like James Bond, the, the white right. good guy. And so, so it makes they've given sense. him a, a Marvin Hamlis score. Uh, they, they've got a composer that scored James Bond films. So, like, they've given him, like, the soundtrack of that movie is what's happening in... Damon's mind,
0: <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent, and um it's it's funny because, like watching it most recently and having grown into a huge fan of the screwball comedy, it's not necessarily of that ilk, but I was thinking there's a Blake Edwards quality, yeah, and you know, there's just <laughs> just sort of the absurdity of everything taking place while all all at the same time you know, commenting on, you know, deceptive corporate, you know, uh, doings of, of all these, uh, you know, and it's interesting too. It's like, because I, I, you know, became friends with somebody who was really uh, into this whole conspiracy surrounding corn and high fructose corn syrup being in everything. (laughs) So this movie is a nice companion piece to learning about, you know, exactly what's going on with that industry.
2: Um, Well, as Ocean's 12 is to Ocean's 11, the informant is to Aaron Brockovich. Like, Aaron Brockovich is yeah. the, the movie that everybody, it's an issues movie. And, you know, you have a corporate, clear corporate crime, and you have the little guy and then the big guys. And you watch Julia Roberts and Albert Finney, you know, take down the giant corporation that wants to pull one over on the masses. And then, Soderbergh says, well, for my encore, I'm going to do this. And it is completely baffling to most people that watch the movie. And that's partly by design. But I I, I love it. I, I absolutely love this movie. Yeah,
0: I love one of my favorite supporting movie too. everybody that shows up. I'm like, oh, awesome. I'm so glad that person's in it. You got Scott Bakula, Melanie Linsky, Joel McHale. Paul, if Tom, like everybody that shows up in this movie, I just, I'm just happy to see
2: them every time. So, and a Huge cast. I mean, this movie takes place over like almost 20 years and it, like, people come in and disappear and, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a normal movie where you can clearly tell who is there and what's what and, and, and whatnot. Um, it's, it's really, uh, it's very, free flowing the way characters disappear for long stretches of time. Like his kids are really not in the movie, which is weird. Um, yeah. well, they're kind of there for a bit and then they're not. And then who knows? Uh, um, yeah. But that, uh, I mean, the weirdest thing about this is that it is kind of uh, like it really happened, not as they tell it, but you know, there was a guy who was embezzling from a company and, and tried to expose them and, 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 you know, was sent to prison for fraud instead, of, and the company paid, but not proportionally as he paid. Um, and for Soderbergh and Scott Z. Burns, the writer, uh, to adapt that book, like the tell all the, the, the insider essentially a uh, book as a quirky, goofy, almost like a slate of hand type of movie is one could say unconscionable, but unlike the case of bubble, I find it delightfully unconscionable. I just, no one would you expect you to tell this story in this fashion. And because it's so unexpected, it's amazing. Um, I can't even describe how weird it is even to watch this now and i've seen the film many times um it, it's it's still i i i it's like a miracle this movie w- was made in this fashion
1: agree uh, andrew i've never heard kurt talk about this movie before this is this i know is a it's first. shocking yeah um well first of all it's it's awesome that the movie poster is like a riff on the 40-year-old virgin so that's twice that that movie's been brought up in this podcast, <laughs> um, but I'm I'm with Jim on the fact that the first time I watched The Informant, which was in the theater, I I liked the movie, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm sure that there's a cinecast where Kurt and I are talking about it, but I didn't I didn't quite know what to make of it at the time. I wasn't sh- clearly it was funny in moments, but it does have some pretty serious moments too um but rewatching it now uh this movie is amazing it is so funny and so and not just funny in uh matt damon's character but in the score in the editing um the way the other characters react to him um little details like I don't know, an hour and a half into the movie where he rearranges his toupee. And, and you're (laughs) like, I just thought that was a movie prop the whole time. And they clearly bring attention to him. Just moving his fake hair around like little details like that are so funny. And I remember thinking in the theater when they, when they had all the narration stuff, I'm like, this is weird. It's all these ramblings of this clearly crazy guy. And you, on the on a second viewing, it's absolutely hysterical <laughs> because you're watching. He's walking through the office, and he's under like super scrutiny for maybe going to jail for years, and uh, you know under indictment for embezzlement and whatever. And he's thinking about polar bears or um, the the Japanese guys who pay for panties. How is that okay? That is not okay. Like, holy shit! That dialogue is amazing. Um, I don't know. I this movie moved way, way up on my Soderbergh scale after this second Shame. rewatch. I can't. I'm, I'm ready to rewatch it tomorrow. It's, it's really, really good and really funny, and I don't know. Like, even kind of interesting too to watch all the. Like they don't get too in deep with technical jargon about, um, you know, uh, Lysine, 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 but also like price fixing and stuff. Right. It's just, you, you understand whatever your knowledge of how, uh, price fixing works or how the economy works or how wall street works. It doesn't matter. It's, you understand that it's illegal, Everything else is comedy on top of it, and it's kind of a dark comedy and weird comedy. Well, but I don't know, like if you're a fan of something like it, eh, I don't know. I can't really compare it to anything. I want to say in the loop, but not really. No, it's not that. No, it's not. I mean, our it's...
2: good friend over at the Mammo Podcast, Matthew Price, was talking about when I had it at the top of my list of like funniest movies of the past 15 years or of the 21st century. And he's like, I can't even laugh at that movie. He's like, that movie is a flat out horror film the whole way because (laughs) he he knows that he's mentally unstable. And you're watching all of these, like all of those asides, all of those wacky asides are his brain to bifurcate and deny his reality. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, so he's covering it up, and it, eventually the voiceover does align with reality. That's the moment when he's finally out of options to – Yeah, when, late, well, when Scott Bakula confronts him with – With the letter from the psychiatrist yeah. that's obviously forged, and they have yeah. absolute proof. And, and you watch his excuses. They, they, they slowly converge. They slowly like, converge, and then all of a sudden he's like, well – I guess I need some help. Like that's that's <laughs> that's the uh, I, it's Matt Damon's delivery of everything well, that makes this movie a comedy. Says, but I still think it's a comedy. I, I, it's sad that it's a comedy of sad, the horrific mental illness. But the fact that he has the audacity audacity to make it a comedy is mind blowing. The fact that this was a huge corporate crime. Not that there are any shortage of corporate crimes going on at any given moment, uh, but. The fact that it was and they play it like a giggle fest. Like, yeah, uh,
0: is it's it's another example of his subverting of expectations.
1: And he does that. (laughs) That's what makes it funny, though, I think, is because it's corporate crime. So, yeah, people are embezzling money. Yeah, there are people being hurt. But as a film goer or as an audience member, you don't really give a shit. Uh, about a company making more money than it should and and price fixing and all this. So it is funny. Like I, and if, the GlucaMate guy, if he's, they, out, of he's out of a job. He's out of a job. If they were dropping bomb, <laughs> if they were carpet bombing uh, cities or whatever, then it wouldn't be so funny. But it's just this whatever, people making an extra million but, here and there. That's so the,
2: that's the whole point of the movie does actually contrast the idea that if if the crime is that like thin like it's it's everybody at every meal like it's it's so like it's broad but it's super thin so people don't really even understand that they're feeling it versus Mark Whitaker which the crime is ultra personal for him his whole family reputation everything is on the line whereas the company yeah they got fines and whatever but they're they're so broadly perpetuating a crime that you can't even comprehend comprehend something that Wide, But that thin rather than the very personal story of, um, you know, of Mark Whitaker's personal problem with reality and disease. There's there's really a couple different movies going on. Like it's only late in the film that you realize that he's embezzling on top of what he thinks is a superhero thing. Yeah, but he's still embezzling on the side. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like it, it's so it's that blurring of he, he wants to see everything black and white, but it's not at all black and white um and that he is the bad guy in a lot of the cases right yeah i and i also i just have to give props to scott beckler because his
0: his reactions especially that that hypothetical scene <laughs> where they're right, um, in the chinese yeah, restaurant yeah 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 and it's like oh that shouldn't be a problem well what if how much money are we talking about well hypothetically $500,000, you know, and like every, like everybody's reactions to
2: him are priceless too. And huge props to Melanie Linsky, who yeah. is, you know, Kate Winslet's career really took off after heavenly creatures. Melanie Linsky is certainly not like she was the other half of the, 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 the duo of young girls. Um, and you certainly see her pop up all over the place. I mean, she's in Up in the Air, Jason Rietman film, and I see her, and I think she's great. She's great in everything she is, but she has a really great role as the one person that, like, really follows Whitaker down the road. Everyone else, you see them react in shock, but she has to be the empathic support system through all of this. Like, the scene where she's like, if you don't tell him, like the tough love sequence early on in the film. If you don't tell him about what's going on, I'm going to tell him what's going on. Um, It's really great. She's really, really great throughout the movie. And, and she's, there's nothing funny about her performance. She's always, um, she's always like right there. And she's, she's kind of clueless, but she has a moral center, which clearly Mark doesn't. And it's just fascinating to watch that dynamic. And I guess they were high school sweethearts. Um, But somehow their relationship survived through all of this craziness. Uh, And and you really get it out of her performance.
1: Melanie Linsky always freaks me out whenever I see her in anything because I always remember her from Detroit Rock City where she plays like an 11th grader. And so every time I see her as an adult 40 something, it's kind of weird. The last thing I wanted to mention about the informant, though, because uh jim's been talking about Cliff Martinez the whole time. The score for the informant is unbelievably amazing it's It goes from that sort of james Bond uh, like dinner sort of yeah, yeah that like mancini and, and then it moves into almost like you're sitcom. walking into a circus or a yeah, yeah a sitcom like it's it's the most amazing score. And it's – I mean, maybe some people would say, like, it's kind of distracting or bombastic. Yeah. But in this case, I think it's a good thing. I think it really brings the audience into the, the tone of what the film is supposed to be, which is total screwball. Well, not screwball, but goofball for sure. Um, and sort of with the James Bond stuff puts you in his headspace. But then with all the circus goofball stuff, puts you in the comedy headspace. I don't know. I Of all of Soder- Soderbergh's films, this is the score that really popped out and made me, like, sucked me into the movie even more. The non-Cliff Martinez score. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I really like. I, you know, okay, the truth is, I feel like, I like the Cliff Martinez score. I like the score in Solaris or Traffic or... I don't know whatever but I feel like on some level it dates the movie or in a bad way adds an auteur um, element to the to whatever the movie is. Again, I like it. I'm not I don't know how to explain it exactly, but I do feel like the second you hear that sound, oh, it's a Soderbergh movie. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing.
0: I, I initially felt that way i had to adapt to it with the nick because i was like yeah
2: really i love it though i love it i do too i do too now yeah um well did you also catch the uh like i feel that the um the informant contagion and side effects form the like yeah giant entity disease trilogy (laughs) Um, yeah, it's all written by Scott Z. Burns, and in uh. the middle of the movie, when Scott Bakula and Matt Damon are are conducting, like they they have to do it like with a sw- at a swimming pool because they couldn't the FBI couldn't afford a room or whatever at the hotel, and he sneezes, and then Matt Damon goes into this whole rant about touching things and time off work and airborne viruses and whatever like this is like a this is like a mini prequel to contagion <laughs> right in the middle of uh right in the middle of the informant is like who's gonna account for that time <laughs> yeah and and going off of that
0: jude law's character in contagion has a little rant about the pharmaceutical industry <laughs> and, and
2: that leads into side effects where yeah not by it <laughs> um exactly. it's a fascinating uh, clearly that's something that's on uh, the writer's Mind, uh, or at least in these three collaborations, I find that uh, endlessly uh, fascinating. And there's one thing before we leave The Informant, although it could apply to any Soderbergh film. M- you brought it up briefly, Jim, earlier about where Soderbergh just cuts the sound and just lets the soundtrack carry the movie it's in Solaris it's Mm -hmm. all over the place in the good German all the marching through buildings with which there are a lot he just lets the the soundtrack kind of drive like there's no actual sound effects at all um, like them walking or wrestling papers or even talking and it's fascinating that a how effective that works and b how much money this takes off of a production All that foley foley extra stuff that you that is unnecessary. You just strip the film down and let the soundtrack run the the scene. I mean, all through the limey. I mean, that's kind of the experiment that's going on where it's just the soundtrack and just the noise or just the ADR that's connecting the scenes, and they don't have to worry about all the other stuff. And this is right through Soderbergh's career. It's in Schizopolis. It's in. I don't. I haven't. Yeah. I did not go back and watch Sex Lies and Videotape. But it's in every film. It's in Haywire. It's in the Girlfriend Experience. Uh, it's in all the Oceans movies. Like when they're doing the big pylon heist uh, in Oceans Twelve, there's no Foley at all. It's just music. Um, it's it's a it's a great way to not be burdened with all this extra work. And yet it in no way looks like you're cutting corners. It actually looks like it's a style. Um, I'm, I'm deeply impressed with, with that. Like how much of Soderbergh's films are just in camera, you know, like you don't have to worry about all this extra stuff. And there's lots of it in the informant. Lots and lots and lots of it. Where the voiceover is doing all the work, or whether the, 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 the Hamlish score is, is doing all the work as people are walking around and getting in elevators or walking through, you know, mid nineties corporate, you know, office buildings and things.
0: Yeah, and I think since you brought up the connection, Kurt. Introduce contagion. And then we're gonna see uh, uh, one more, possibly two, but I'm thinking one more after that, but.
2: We'll- okay. Uh, well, Contagion is kind of his, again, it's, it's in that big Hollywood celebrity kind of uh, mode. If you look at the cast of this movie, it is crazy how expensive this movie must have been actor wise. Um, and yet he doesn't. Tell your standard big celebrity movie a lot of these actors have very small parts uh and he he's not tracking any one character over the course of the movie the movie's about a like swine uh like swine flu avian bird virus SARS kind of disease and it tracks the disease through all of the um the different uh, characters that might interact. It's just, so there's some families, there's some uh, large organizations like the world health organization and the center for disease control in Atlanta. Then there's bloggers. There's um, uh, yeah, it's just kind of a a great mix. There's people helping with the disease and you watch as this thing wipes out. I don't know, a a good chunk of the world's population before uh, a cure is found. Um, But unlike Aaron Brockovich and the informant. Uh, this is actually a pretty strong, this make movie makes a very strong case for the power of like government <laughs> to handle a situation. I mean, the government's not perfect in how it handles the situation in contagion, but I can't think of a larger argument for the CDC and FEMA and the world health organization. They're usually the villains <laughs> in movies in here. They're kind of the people that are working Um, Are the heroes, even though the heroes still kind of break a lot of the big rules, like uh, in particular, um, uh, Jennifer Ellie's character injects the virus into herself when she thinks he has a cure to jumpstart things. And Elliot Gould's character also is told to stop working on it because his facility is not strong enough containment, he, he like he, he solves a big problem by not listening uh, to the thing, and, and Larry Fishburne's character is told to not tell anyone he tells his wife, and, 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 and that's the thing. The movie's ostensibly about the spread of a disease, and that's mostly what you see, but it's more, just like the tagline on the poster, it's far more about the spread of an idea, um, and the fear that is latching out is way more dangerous, and that's in evidence by... Jude Law's blogger in particular who goes from a, a kind of a fringe nobody that can barely get a meeting at the San Francisco Chronicle to being the chief media voice uh, the outside of the government um, <laughs> for everything. And as you'll remember, he gets taken down pretty hard. Like the blogging journalist is is considered like Uh, not a good thing in this movie again not generally the way things are spun in your normal disaster movie Um, there are no heroes in this movie there's lots of people that are little heroes but there's no one big hero in this movie and I find that really fascinating it's also told um, kind of out of order uh, even though it it is tracked by days Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later as well I like this movie a lot. It's another movie I watch a fair bit. Now, having done this podcast or preparing for this podcast, I realized how many Soderbergh movies I watch on a regular basis. <laughs> but, uh, like this is the second time this year for me for Contagion, um, and uh, and they, nowhere even more than Solaris. Possibly the Cliff Martinez score just drives this movie. It, it's it's like a it's like a drumbeat that drives this whole film.
0: Yeah, I mean rewatching. All of
2: these movies, I was like,
0: yeah, I think Soderbergh's one of my favorite directors, clearly, because, like, all these movies are distinct pleasures in different ways, and, you know, going from something like The Informant to Contagion, they're, they're movies I love for different reasons, and... I will say this about contagion, and that's, again, I have to get a little personal because I contracted an infectious disease that almost killed me uh, my senior year of high school. So I have a personal response to any movie dealing with sudden death and disease. Um, and that's, you know, kind of a personal thing that I, I experience watching this movie, um, you know, and I have an intense emotional and visceral response to. Matt Damon's reaction to Gwyneth Paltrow passing away because my, my dad died suddenly of cancer. So, like, my investment in this movie is maybe a little bit more heightened than, you know, the the average person's. How did and this same- movie
2: not give you a heart attack? This <laughs> movie is designed to be a full-blown horror film. It is. And for the most part, I, I I feel that way. And
0: yet at the same time, you're right. It does focus on the heroics a little bit with, with a character like, like Jennifer Ellie and you know what she does and the way she communicates to her father. And it's, it's there, there's, there's a lot of heart. And aside from the choice to use a really cheesy U2 song at the end, um, I think Damon gives it his all in those final moments and contrasted with the humanity of, of that is the very final moments, which I think are stunning in showing how, this disease manifested itself through the bat then the pig and then the pig go,
2: you know from the well, cook. especially considering the fact that it was the company it was the company's project to clear that forest that they were there for yeah. it, to break ground that actually made all those connections maybe that's a little on the nose but it's as a horror movie that's wonderful that's wonderful uh-huh. and
0: effective yeah as no
2: i effect we're all connected element no doubt I'm unnerved by this
0: movie but I'm also in awe of just the editing the just the cadence of it all just again the score um and you know even even just there's surprises in here I was genuinely shocked at you know Kate Winslet's fate um I will say the Marion Cotillard thing is maybe the one thing I'm not as crazy about just her kidnapping is she disappears for
2: almost yeah. an entire hour in the movie. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's kind of the only downside. It's just because I love her as an actress so much. I want her to be in it more, but I realize it's an ensemble piece, and that's that's inevitable. Um, but this is, again, another one of my favorite Soderbergh films, and I think Andrew feels differently. <laughs>
1: uh, I'm not crazy about this movie. I don't like super dislike it, like something like Ocean's 12, but... Um. What The thing I find weird about this movie is that it's one of the only ones uh, tackling this subject matter, like, ever. I, I, I feel like... So, this movie was done in 2010, 11, 12, somewhere in there, and... I mean, at the time, I felt like it was preaching to me, like, this is something that can happen. You should be scared about this. These are all the things that are... And in my head, at the time, I'm I'm thinking, I know all of this. I, I'm very aware of things that I touch. Like, the movie very often focuses on people touching things and the, how germs are spread and... Um, and things like that and I thought yeah I learned that in 11th grade I'm really I'm already pretty aware of bathroom door handles and and things and washing my hands and all that stuff so on that level I kind of felt like eh, this is kind of old territory um also um, I other movies I I feel like have done this better there's the HBO AIDS movie with um Matthew Modine called, and the band played on. It sort of tackles the same idea, like a scare. This movie goes way beyond that, and it becomes a thing that is super susceptible to um, anybody in a in a room or whatever. Where AIDS is not that, but it's it's sort of the same idea where there's this epidemic, there's a scare, there's quarantine, there's uh, the CDC is involved, it's a global effort, and there's this global. Um, like all this political red tape well we can't release a drug right now because there's months of studying that have to be done we have to test it here we have to test it there and then a paper has to be published and all this stuff while people are dying I feel like all of that stuff has already been covered in other things that I've seen Um, And maybe that's an unfair criticism of this movie, but while I was watching this movie, I felt like it was preaching to me about (laughs) things that I've already thought of or heard of or seen or prepared for on some level. Um, But
2: don't you feel that Contagion is possibly the most realistic? It doesn't have that Hollywood movie sensationalism. Well, to me, it's all about the autopsy in this movie. That's the thing, though. I've seen an autopsy. It is bang on like that. That is the most accurate on screen autopsy
1: ever. And how clinical it is. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not. There's. I don't actively dislike Contagion. I actually kind of like Contagion. But, yes, there's the Hollywood version with Dustin Hoffman of this movie, which I also like. And I kind of like that movie because it's Hollywood. But I also like the... Matthew Sorry, Dean you mean version. Outbreak? Yeah, Outbreak, exactly. Um, I I don't know. I There's something about this movie that's super um cookie cutter it, i it feels like traffic to me um but just with disease instead of drugs and as we talked about on the previous Soderbergh podcast which we we recorded very recently um it's it it falls in my estimation after rewatching it's it's such a i i I still feel like even though it's trying to be realistic I find a lot of hollywood in here um all of the filter effects, all of the bullshit drama between characters within supposed professional facilities and buildings, and like the Elliot Gould stuff, it's interesting because I, I feel like that's probably a realistic thing. Like, you're you are not, you don't have OSHA mandate or whatever to work on this, you're not level five that's probably a realistic thing. At the same time, it feels a little bit like Hollywood bullshit too, just to create tension and drama where there is none. Um I I don't it's it's so hard for me to pinpoint this movie because like I said, I don't dislike it. I just think there there's nothing new in here or interesting that I haven't seen in either A reality, B Hollywood. Or see other things that Soderbergh has done, and I agree with you. That's that the um, the autopsy scene where they peel going to Peltro's face back. It's amazing, but that doesn't necessarily make the movie interesting. Like they're constantly focusing on people touching stuff, and then somebody else touches it, or somebody coughing and not covering their mouth. That's real stuff that people should absolutely be concerned about but it isn't i feel like the movie's telling me that wow you you this is something you should know about and i'm watching it going i've known about this for 20 years i don't
2: well I don't to me find it's it interesting. like the michael Haneke film um amour uh we know we all know we're gonna die <laughs> But when you watch more, you're very cognizant of the fact that you're going to die and it's going to be really awkward. And I feel the way that Soderbergh deals with germs um in the film and by focusing on that and if you watch contagion in a public movie theater you're you're aware that someone at the previous screening was sitting in your seat and was touching the armrest it's it's just a fact of uh dishabituating yourself from all those little things that your body naturally filters out and because you don't need this information all the time or you just will you be a hypochondriac but you just don't see filtered this movie's actively bringing it back to the forefront and i think this is the only soderbergh movie that scares the shit out of me like it it really does
1: it's funny Um, that you mentioned the theater thing because in the hollywood version with dustin hoffman and cuba gooding jr there's a scene in a theater in a movie theater where like somebody coughs and you watch the germ like float through the air and then go directly into somebody's <laughs> yeah, mouth. Yeah. It's the same that's, thing. That's shitty though. No, no. Why? It's the same. Exact uh, <laughs> I want, I want and to as just, as far eat. as watching all the clinical, like you love police procedural stuff. Yeah. If you love that stuff, watch and the band played on because that's the procedural version of the CDC. It's so much more interesting to watch them track back. This person carried this I mean they do it in this movie too but there's all the bullshit of the bloggers and I told my wife and um, and again that's stuff that's probably real but I'm I'd much more just be interested in watching the process
2: well contagion is trying to make you look at the whole ecosystem yeah, yeah. whereas Ed, the bland played on a film I've not seen is, is, is got a smaller sphere of what it's looking at Soderbergh's trying to do like the full gamut of 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 the planet and um and, and I and think try and get it all in to like like oh, I don't know what 100 and 100 minutes or something it's maybe it could have been a better mini series yeah, almost but, like traffic was that's initially what you with traffic right traffic was a 6 hour british mini uh and I think the 6 hour british mini is way better than traffic the film. Um, there was an extra story actually, even in that that sort of were just wholesale eliminated um, in traffic. And, and traffic's fine. Again, it's amazing how it condenses everything. I have no idea what the long version of Contagion would I think it would make a great like 13-hour HBO yeah. series. But I also am in absolute awe that he got what he got out of this movie. How compact he makes it without you. Throwing up your hands and going, you know, this is not possible to do in this shortest span of time. He does a really great job at keeping it concise.
1: Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> I, it's okay. It's fine. I, I, I agree with Jim. I'd get rid of the whole Marion Cotillard thing. Although, again, in a in a mini series, the whole aspect of scientists and people in power or people in the know being kidnapped or family members of those people being kidnapped is an absolute real thing
2: and how the government has baseball players have uh, starting a rash of like if you live in the
1: Dominican Republic and you're the relative of a a famous baseball player you're in jeopardy of being kidnapped like that's a real thing so that's interesting but I don't know trying to throw it in here along with the whole blogger Thing. No, there's I'm something that's saying- deeply interesting
2: to me, Andrew. In that, when Marion Cotillard is kidnapped, she accepts that, and she's like, "Well, I can do something useful while I'm here." That was deeply interesting to me in Contagion. She's like, "Oh, fine, I'll, I'll teach the I'll teach the school <laughs> because like three quarters of this village was wiped out, and I will, even though I'm a victim, I'm a kidnapped victim here." Uh, and I'm in risk of contracting the disease there's nothing i can do so i can make myself useful it's it the, the movie for all of its horror elements is surprisingly optimistic about a lot of things which yeah. i liked
1: i think the world could use a good contagion that's what i think
2: yeah Ooh, oh, boy
1: yeah, starting with you that's buddy. what
2: peak oil was supposed to be <laughs> that's what peak oil was supposed to be
1: yeah bringing the population of the planet back down to a billion. And that's the thing is I feel like based on what I know, it's a very real possibility. It's just that this movie is, I I don't know. It's, it's Hollywood fear mongering that doesn't totally like all the stuff with officials telling people I, the Matt Damon, so first of all, it's all in blue filter, so you know it's where it is, uh, Minneapolis. Um, <laughs> Lake and Lindale. <laughs> yeah, it's on Lake and Lindale. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, uh, like, the officials are like, that's all the doses we have for today, and everybody goes ape shit and raids the place or whatever, and then ten minutes later, well, that's all the food we have today, and everybody goes apeshit. It, it's just such crap i don't i feel like i'm arguing for matt gamble when we had our uh big disagreement on on the vampire movie back in the day right right isn't this how daybreakers started yeah oh god where i'm i'm on the flip side now where (laughs) i just think that's just not realistic or not believable how the how it's handled and um and it also the movie advances far too Quickly for the audience to keep up, I agree that in in movie world it 's probably pre, pretty realistic. I think they even go over the numbers twenty four thousand tomorrow, five hundred thousand the next day, seven million the next day or whatever the numbers are uh, that may be realistic, but in movie world it just advances so quickly and so fast that we don 't have time to acclimate to this new world that we 're in because you 're following the disease vector you 're not supposed and, to to acclimate i i I think you should be able to though in movie world i don't know
2: now you're reviewing the movie you want and not the movie that is clearly that's a part deep in the dna of this movie that's what its intent is to be is that the disease is moving faster than anyone can possibly keep up with that's why the movie is constructed this way but i agree though i agree with you I would love to see the 10-hour version of this. Or if, if, if Soderbergh decide not to do the Nick, which would suck because the Nick is that awesome,
1: and he decided
2: yeah. to do Contagion, like the, the series, I'd be on
1: board with that too. No, 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 no. Don't do the fucking Contagion. It's, I want Nick season two. Well, it's coming. <laughs> Starts, so like, we're not, not week. Is it next week already? I think Ooh. so. All right. I'm excited. The brink will well, end and the Nick will start. I'm happy. All right, are we What's what the else urge are we doing? I'm
0: gonna resist the urge to mail you uh some anthrax Andrew.
1: <laughs> I'll probably end up snorting it
0: <laughs> well, but this is
2: another Here's good an point c d instead what
1: yeah he's just give just give you the c d
2: um this is another point to show how much of this movie. He lets Cliff Martinez's score and not have worry about audio when people are talking and discussing things. He just lets the yeah. score play and like you get the idea. I don't need to have a lengthy realistic dialogue sequence if the montage and the score is enough. Um, and and I think he does like particularly at the end of the film, <laughs> and he just lets it all play out. Right, like um, yeah, a- after
0: Drive, there's just been nothing but these. Pulsing synth-heavy scores, and I'm, ugh, oh, that's my jam. Yeah, I mean, it is. I love it. I can't get enough of it. Yeah. Okay, guys. Um, yeah, it's kind of, uh, kind of up in the air here. I'm, I'm flexible. I could do either. Hey, effects for our last discussion here? Because I'm a fan of both. Uh, don't love either of them necessarily. I think, but I, I, I don't know. You guys kind of just. Dis- Side, which we'll talk about more?
1: Well, my vote's for Haywire. Well, Haywire and Side Effects are both films I saw once in the theater and have not seen since. So, although I feel like Ooh. both are pretty well stuck in my head, so if uh, if Kurt wants to talk Haywire, I'm fine with that.
2: Yeah, let's let's do Haywire. It, it wraps things perfectly around from Lem Dobbs, uh, The Limey, yeah. which started things off, to Haywire, which would close things out. Exactly. Good call. Um,
0: and Again, it's another pleasurable rewatch for me, and I would think that the only strike, and it's nothing major, it's just like, you know, Gina Carano is a bit too deadpan for my taste. I mean, I'm I'm assuming that just sort of fits her persona, I guess. But nearly everything else works for me. I'm 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 all for any type of inverted revenge film. And again, the best I probably mentioned this already in earlier was the lack of music during its fight scenes. It gives this immediate intensity that makes it so un-Hollywood. And I wish. More filmmakers would give that a, in eight uh, scenes like quite well here, and they're shot, you know, from di- a distance so we can actually see what's all taking place. And it's now all in the annoying close-ups, and I just quite a bit. I I'm really surprised. Like when I first, you know, heard about this, I was like, wow. I mean, I guess almost every director wants to get, you know, have their kind of uh, great cast again and i mean the only strike for me like i said is carano i just i don't think she's a compelling actress overall but that's just a nitpick everything else i love
2: yeah i don't get the uh gina carano's not great in this i really think that her mallory character is deeply compelling uh to watch on screen i i I, I, I know that's a criticism that I've read over and over and over, and I can get it if you're talking about Gina Carano's performance in the Fast and Furious movie that she was in. I get it there. But here I, I think you know she's the centerpiece of this movie. I, I, I like to think that the pitch for this movie is um, – We're going to hire someone who knows how to fight and we're going to have her beat the shit out of the largest collection of great-looking Hollywood A-listers that we can (laughs) assemble in one film. Like, where she's literally going to beat them all up, except for Michael Douglas, Um, because he's too cool to fight. Um, And Bill Paxton. That's right, and Bill Paxton plays her dad. But Bill Paxton's not a good-looking man, so he's not like the Ewan McGregor or Michael Fassbender or Antonio Banderas, like, preternaturally – handsome men um i mean even the who, matthew almerich is, is which she doesn't physically beat up in the movie but he has a small role he's he's also pretty handsome for a frenchman um, where to French. begin with this movie uh i i i i just I think it's really smart that he made an action movie and that he made an action movie in, in his particular way. I like to arrange Steven Soderbergh movies into these little trilogies. So this is the people doing their kind of job in a movie, kind of like the sea of bubble. You have the girlfriend experience and you have Haywire where he's casting people that are not traditionally actors to be the center of a movie. Um, and they're, and he's given them, a character that is not terribly far from their actual job um and i mean that's certainly not the case with everyone else in the film but in terms of gina carano who's in a mixed martial arts action star retired um she they let her fight and the her physical body language in the movie i can't imagine like i've seen carrie ann moss or uh zhang ji or um you know, Natalie Portman in 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 Black Swan. I've seen a lot of actresses that are that that, you know, are playing these parts that are a mixture of them and body doubles and, 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 and their own skill sets and, and whatnot to convincingly play something, but I don't think I've seen anything quite to the level of Gina Carano. Like certain ways she runs up walls or uses pivots her body in the fight sequences are they add an authenticity uh, to a movie that doesn't even really require it, like the movie's plot isn't exactly hyper realistic. Um, it's it's a straight up genre movie, but that becomes the extra value add that you wouldn't normally get in this type of movie is the physicality of of her in the movie.
1: As for myself, I didn't rewatch the movie, but just going based off of my little letterbox review and comments on Kurt's review on row three. Um, I remember s- like sort of equating it to, um, shit, I can't remember the director's name, but the American starring George Clooney, funny enough. Yeah, to- oh, oh, Anton Corbin. Anton Corbin. Yeah. Where I really liked, I really liked a lot of the non action sequences. A lot of the, the people pondering things and pondering their outcomes and pondering what's to come almost more than the action sequence sequences themselves. That said, all of the action sequences, at least the one, uh, particularly the Fastbender, like the yeah. set piece of the movie, obviously the Fastbender um, fight in the hotel room, um, slash sex scene. Yeah, totally. It is uh, it's, positioned it's in the movie where the sex scene would be right. done with fighting. <laughs> mm. I liked all of the anticipation and the planning and the thought processes behind what might happen or what's going to happen or what just happened a little more compelling than the action stuff, which is kind of weird. You know, something like like Melville, Melville's movies, um, Les Samurai or Cirque du Rouge or something like that, where it's all about. The low-keyness of the action or the believability of the action Right. Um, that makes it much more compelling than the actual action itself. If that makes any sense at all.
2: No, I, I think I know what you're saying, uh, and I, I think the movie has a nice balance of this. It has this whole um, like m- like middle management element to the movie. Between Ewan McGregor's character and Antonio Banderas' character and Matthew Almeric's character and uh, not it's not Matthew Almeric, it's Matthew Cassavit's, um, and Michael Douglas's, which are just basically them negotiating contracts <laughs> for most of the movie. <laughs> and then you have the the write down on the floor elements of Fastbender's character and 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 Bill Paxton for what little time he's in the film and and uh, and Carano uh, doing her thing. And that the the kid from the brass teapot, what's his name? Um, the kid that she kidnaps at the beginning and, and for yeah. Channing Tatum, Fantastic. this was the first movie that I watched that I realized Channing Tatum could act. Now I know Soderbergh has gone on to other things with him, the, the, the magic Mike films um, and given him bigger roles. And he certainly proved himself even in dumb Comedies like the 21 Jump Street movies, he's proven that his acting chops may massively improve those movies. But this was the first movie, and his chemistry with Gina Carano all over the place in the diner, uh, in the Barcelona job, and in Bill Paxton's, you know, mansion or whatever at the end that really show how good of an actor he is. And that's, I, I mean, obviously he, he has talent, but Soderbergh's like, it feels like Soderbergh was the first director to truly pull this out of him.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah i agree with I you i right. remember even seeing the trailer it was like oh channing tatum is pulling something out of his ass here the guy can perform and then you're right yeah i mean it's it's a pretty short moment in the movie like tatum doesn't show up again that often does he right he kind of gets he his ass kicked and that's it yeah, yeah.
2: Well, and then there's little things like there. You can go. There's a website that'll show the whole Dublin uh, urban scene where she's chased and she dumps a cell phone and she goes through a couple buildings and over rooftops and back down. You there's a website that actually overlays her route onto Google Maps, and that like that route is like accurate.
1: That's kind of cool. It certainly
2: doesn't need <laughs> to be. It certainly doesn't need to be. But they like actually just staged and shot that that whole sequence accurately, which is weird to me. And it, it's, it kind of gets back to that whole Soderbergh, like artistic constraint thing. Like he, he makes real choices when he walks into a film, even like, yeah. a, like what could be a paycheck movie, like the Limey or, or, um, or Haywire. And, and he just does things that are um, like for his own benefit and of course it makes it a better movie too whether you know that you can overlay her walk around and up through those buildings onto the actual geography of that part of dublin and it makes sense or not it feels like it in the movie so um and going that extra mile whether it be with the fight choreography and 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 the design of the fights um or or this thing it it does elevate because Carano's certainly done other films like cheese ball action films and whatnot. And none of them are even like a, a hundredth of as good as this. Like she'll, she may never be in another movie as good as, as, as this movie. I
0: would um, hope so. I mean, I don't want to give the impression. That I don't like her. I think she's a good, she's got great presence and obviously she can kick ass. And I enjoy watching her. It's just that there are times where she delivers lines a little, too stoically and i i know that maybe that's just her character and right when you're in that position maybe that's just how you're going to be you don't want to uh play your cards or you know show any emotion when you're under those circumstances that that makes complete sense so um and i i mean i get the impression that maybe he you know set out to provide a you know kind of a action heroine film that's kind of pro-feminist in a way just so we could like, yeah, like you mentioned at the top Kurt with, you know, the choices of men that she has to fight. And, you know, I think that, I think it's, it's very convincing throughout that, like, you know what, we should have more movies like this, (laughs) that, you know, more action movies where women do take control and women, you know, have uh, the physicality to um, dominate and, you know, show that they can be uh, badasses because they can be clearly. And, and
2: not you know, have like really a 40, like the 80 pound woman, you know, throwing around these big guys. You believe her physicality. exactly yeah. When she runs, when she's fighting, you don't believe that, oh, well, they're just making her be a superhero. That You believe that physicality that, that she's doing. I love the whole sequence where she's going – through Dublin and she's going up the buildings and go down. And then the last thing after elegantly like avoiding everyone, the last thing she does, she just pulls the wrong wire and she falls a good like eight feet. Right. And lands on her back and just has to take a moment to say, yeah, I got away, but you know, mistakes were made and um, that hurt. And that really hurt. (laughs) Like she has to sit there and just recover from it. It, it, That's more movies need to put those scenes in. Yeah. To, to to bring humanity back to the action or adventure uh movie. I actually feel it's interesting cuz Soderbergh's worked with Matt Damon so much and he he was in some way involved uh, maybe as a producer or whatever for one of the Bourne films, but I feel that this is in a way very much like the way Matt Damon is portrayed particularly in the first Bourne film, the the Doug Liman one, um where mm. You know, he's very like the way he looks at maps and he's very critical. And when you're watching the first born movie, you feel that almost everything that he does is just by virtue of him sizing up a situation very carefully and not panicking and just getting through the situation effectively and all the training. Now, in that, he's like unconsciously trained. But in this, she you, you know, she's got all the marine credentials and whatnot. But it still has that same. Wow, this feels like really genuine kind of. Vibe. and i guess it's also the born identity is also structured with the on the ground improvising versus all the bureaucratic stuff you know all the cia uh, contracts and arrangements and and and, and whatnot um uh, also the structure of haywire it's a it's a movie told in flashback for the first slightly more than half and then it's a movie told in real time after she crashes the deer in the, in the, in the thing for a while. And then when she meets up with you and McGregor, it becomes a movie told in flashback from his point of view. Um, Until it wraps like the way it wraps right around. In fact, the movie begins with her saying shit as she yep. wanders into the <laughs> diner and it ends with you and McGregor going, shit no, I, <laughs> Antonio, Antonio, Banderas. Sorry, Antonio Banderas going shit it's this perfect I, I I love that Soderbergh likes these ideas and he's willing to put them in there whether for, just for his own personal sense of symmetry and filmmaking and they don't really mean anything but they're they're nice to see um and and that's I guess in a nutshell um what I love about Soderbergh. First and foremost, I guess in the same way Scorsese is a film fan, uh, Soderbergh is a huge fan of watching movies. Clearly. And, you know, like he's... That, that And that you get when you see... Like a lot of his films feel like the calle de cinema sense of the best way to criticize a film is to make another film <laughs> and do what you wanted to do with that thing. I feel that's what his Solaris is. I feel that's what his traffic is. I feel that's what his contagion is. Uh, um, there's so many of his films that feel very um, uh, reaction. I also feel, and the last thing I think I have to say on all this, and I, this time I mean it, um, is I feel Apple, the corporation Apple, owes money to Soderbergh because that skinny typeset that is the, the, the modern Apple operating system when they did their big update with the iPhone six or whatever. And they massively updated iOS that skinny font. It that's contagion. That's Solaris. That's Haywire. That's all of, all of his kind of post films, post Solaris films use that elegant skinny font that Apple has adopted as its primary font in uh, um, on all of its, Portable devices.
1: Um, and my last words, ev- evading the, the Apple bait there, um, <laughs> on is when is when you talked about how he's a fan of film and has seen all these things, like clearly with Good German, he's trying to recreate an era there but doing his own thing. Um, I like that fail or succeed, however you want to look at it. I also like the fact that he kind of has these new ideas, like, how can I do this, but I want to do it in a completely new way that nobody else has ever done before. Schizopolis. The Nick is, the Nick is a great uh, schizophrenia. every medical
2: is drama is great, on TV, but no um, one's ever done... Nobody's done this period version of it. medical drama with all this kind of really visceral stuff.
1: And I think it's crazy that we did an entire separate episode of Soderbergh and just skipped over like Che and the girlfriend experience. Yeah, course, I know. I know. Yeah. And <laughs> maybe that'll be a part three at some point because there's a lot Lots of stuff of in there. If he comes out of retirement for sure. Um, <laughs> I don't think he will though. But Soderbergh is absolutely my favorite living director. Um, and yeah. And, and that's, what Kurt said, I like. that's what I like about him is he's clearly a fan of film and sometimes is trying to emulate that stuff and wear it on his sleeve and say, yeah, this is all the stuff I watched throughout my life and I'm uh, 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 like r- rolling along with that stuff. But I'm also trying to do something else that nobody's ever done before or thought about before or this is my idea. The whole idea of going back to Ocean Twelve of a- adding Julia Roberts as a character playing Julia Roberts, it, a lot of people don't like that, but I, I think it's kind of a nice calculated risk that somebody else hasn't thought of before. And it's a movie I hate, but on the <laughs> other hand, that's a, that's a moment where it's like, I'm going to just try something that I haven't seen in another movie before. Um, that I kind of like and admire, and I hope he keeps doing stuff like that.
0: The, the more and more I rewatch his movies, the more and more I go, yeah, this—he is, you know, he is up there with the great Tarantino, Coen Brothers. I don't know. I just I put Soderbergh high up there. Um, after, let me ask the, you this though, Jim: Would
2: hmm. Tarantino or the Coen Brothers work? second unit on a Hollywood blockbuster just for kicks. No, <laughs> like when Soderbergh <laughs> decided for one of the hunger games movies, I want to be yeah. second unit director for this movie. I know he has a relationship with Gary Ross and stuff, but it's just a weird thing. I can't, I guess Tarantino did it a bit with sin city, but I, I just can't see other directors doing just cause it, cause it would be funny if I did this. Yeah.
0: I mean, Again, he's he's kind of a renaissance man, and and he you know he does it all, and he treats his camera to do a whole lot more uh, than just like okay, I am going to do a fancy camera shot in like a ramey esque kind of fashion. He does it to highlight a character's uh, thought process or to distance uh, the audience a little bit too, and I think he does that for for um you know for good reason and something like like I was mentioning with haywire and just letting us see something from a distance as opposed to up close and I think he's really inventive uh with his cinematography and it's god it's always so beautiful to look at I think my favorite moment in his entire filmography is still the Gary and Celeste seduction scene in
2: Out of Sight uh yeah. And, and just a little nod to don't look now right so oh, well yeah, yeah. <laughs> like i mean it, it's 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 a modern take on a very very famous piece of film history
1: and Absolutely. just just a, a, a straight up nod to again his love of film i've seen all right. of these movies and i'm going to say i love this movie in this moment
0: yeah And, you know, natural lighting, the sound design, the scores, his rhythmic editing style, even his crazy, absurd sense of humor in Schizopolis just works for me 100%. And he's never boring. Even his failed experiments, like Ocean's 12, in my opinion, have their moments. So, yeah, he's he's I'm so glad we got to do a part two on this guy and maybe in the future. Four years from now, who knows? We, we might have to do a part three. Since I've yet to see Che, and I, I plan on it, I just haven't gotten to it yet. Since it's quite long, but I, I will. I, I obviously I will watch it soon.
2: I think this guy has a filmography that's so long and so deep that every like 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 the Akira Kurosawa or. Um, uh i don't know sydney lumay or you know what i mean where you're like there's always everyone always has one or two that they just haven't gotten around to and they're little <laughs> gems that you could say oh i've been saving that one that's the right. last one i haven't seen like did, did you know that he wrote i'm sure just for kicks he wrote the remake to nine queens now i never saw that movie but soderbergh wrote the screenplay for criminal which is uh like the argentinian uh like con man film, which is amazing. Amazing movie. I don't know if the remakes any good, but the fact that he's like, he doesn't direct it. He's not doing anything. He just wrote the screenplay for the remake, just probably for the exercise of doing so. Does he sleep? I mean, God, he just does. Uh, The (laughs) dude can multitask. He's a very good multitasker. Well, we're going to end this
0: episode with now a top five. Can you guys do that? I know how hard it is. I'm, I started this with the Cronenberg episode with part with part two episodes. I'm like, we got to expand it because their filmographies are so large and it's hard to contain it to three. I'm going to go with a top five here.
1: That's hilarious that you say that, because while you were talking, I was just moving around my letterbox top five Soderbergh list. So, yes, I am ready. You want me to order first, Kurt, and then you can think about it? Uh,
2: you do me last. I'll, I'll, I'll come up with a five. I know what the three are, but I'll, I'll, I'll fix it up. So you just go all at once.
1: All right. Um, just double checking here. Um, all right. So my top five are number five, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Number four would be Solaris. Number three would be The Informant. Number two would be Out of Sight. And number one is Ocean's Eleven. Ooh. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned, I did rewatch Ocean's Eleven, like, yesterday, (laughs) Um, just because that movie is so by far, like, a five out of five I got it. That movie's so great. It's so funny and so perfect in every way. Yeah, I want to watch it before bed tonight. <laughs> it's such an easy watch too. Like, boom, yeah. put it on and have a good time.
0: Number five for me is Contagion. Number four is The Informant. Number three is Solaris. Number two is Sex Lies and Videotapes. Since I've rewatched wow. it in the past couple of years, it's and great.
1: I love it more and more. Number one, out of sight. Nice. So we have the same five movies, just in different order.
2: Yeah, well, I don't. Oh, have except Ocean's I order. don't have
1: Contagion, but yeah, yep,
2: yep. yeah, yeah. I oh, uh, I don't know how to do this. Uh, let's <laughs> let's say um, uh, Ocean Twelve is number five. Uh, Contagion is number four solaris is number three the limey is number two and out of sight is is number one
1: which is what makes the cinecast so dynamic right there
2: yeah no kidding the i'll tell you this though when out of sight played in the theater i really didn't i i'd seen sex lies and videotape but i really didn't know Soderbergh right like when it came out in the late 90s um I hadn't seen anything else he's done and I'm still pretty weak in the, in the earlier, like I, I haven't seen the underneath or King of the Hill or Kafka. Um, I've seen Cap parts of great. Kafka, but not, not in, in its entirety. Um, King of the Hill
1: is great. Yes.
2: I remember the trailer for out of sight going, that looks like such a stretch. Like it looks so strained that I didn't even see it in the theater. um, out of sight when it came out and when it came out on vhs because we're going back that far um i saw it on vhs and i'm like well what the fuck was i thinking like this movie is insanely good which i think is actually the populist or at least the movie studio reaction because there was kind of an underwhelming i mean Grey's anatomy is fantastic but King of the Hill, Kafka, sex, like after the kind of stink he caused with sex lies and videotape, he kind of over underwhelmed a lot of people and Schizopolis did him no favors at the time (laughs) at the Cannes Film Festival. And yet out of sight, he just made this glossy, super mainstream commercial film that still feels fresh and sexy. And although all the things that you turn to indie or art house for, and it blended them all in this perfect neat little package that still somehow wasn't smug or or anything i, I it's a miracle that that and that of course regenerated, revised his or rejuvenated his whole career as a filmmaker and 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 what a career it's been but yeah out of sight i it seems like the populist choice but i it is the number one yeah.
1: I, I mean, I'm the same way. Like my top two are out of sight Ocean's 11, which are absolutely his most populist films. They're the most audience friendly.
2: Well, Brockovich, I None mean, of us really went you know, to Brock. He won Brockovich. the Oscar for Traffic.
1: <laughs> I um, talked about Brockovich on a cinecast, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half ago. That movie is actually really good. It is. Aaron Brockovich is really good. It's not as Hollywood bullshit as you. <laughs> <laughs> I oh,
2: that's okay, it's, it's fine. That shot alone when she goes out and gets into her car. That's such an elegant shot. Like that's just a. It looks like one take, and, and it's, it's so perfect. It
1: might be Julia Roberts' best role. I think uh, it is. It's it's good. It's really good. All, all right, guys. Jim. This was awesome.
0: Yeah, I I really love talking Soderbergh again. It's like, you know, the, every na- and Kurt. Thank God you got to be on for like an optimistic director because you were. I mean, no, Hal Hartley's a
2: comedy director. I'm super pleased with all of my appearances on your show. Jesus, um, of course, you were Montreer and Hanneke Michael Winterbottom, who is the British Soderbergh. Um, You know, so... You have to to be on for a joyful director, too. And a big, big name. Normally, I get the kind of either classic Hollywood or kind of out there guys. This guy, you know, you you won't give me a Lynch or a Tarantino or a a Spielberg, but Soderbergh feels like in that ballpark. So where can we be reading more from you, Kurt? Uh, You can find... Well, if you were to really go full circle to the Fantasia stuff that kicked off the beginning of this show all of my fantasy well some of it is at um row three i often duplicate myself between row three and twitch film but all of the fantasia stuff including my wrap-up post and 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 everything that was good and 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 bad and, and and weird about fantasia can all be found over at twitch film and also row three and you can find me on twitter although mainly it's just my photography um at triflic t-r-i-f-l-i-c and uh uh yeah and if you want to actually find me in physical hardcore <laughs> old school print you can uh, pick yourself up a copy of satanic panic where i make a small contribution i thought you were going to give out your address for a second
0: there i was
1: like all excited
0: um andrew where can we find you
1: I'm also at row3.com. Oh. Uh, occasionally you can find me on Twitter, Andrew underscore James. Um, but that's mostly it. I'm excited. Uh, this week we're going to, on the Cinecast, we're going to talk a little bit about the man from Uncle and uh, Straight Out of Compton. Yeah. I and I noticed on Letterbox because I, I just went and saw the end of the tour today. You saw it like four months ago at a film festival. You and I are on the same page on that. I,
2: mm-hmm. That's all
1: I will say. Um, but, uh, yeah, so mostly I'm at row three, and now that I'm done with school, I'm just going to be watching a shit ton of movies. And uh, if there's ever an Elma Dovar <laughs> director's oh, club, no. <laughs> you know who to come to. Oh, man, yeah, that's another one. There's
0: Yeah, that's it's been tough to reformulate the schedule and be like, well, I... I kind of want to make this transition a little bit more pleasurable and, you know, do a couple of sequel episodes. Uh, in other words, directors that are not too intimidating. I'm not going to do Antonioni anytime soon. But I, I will at some point. But Have just you not. guys
1: done, like, just done, like, a populist list? Have you done, like, I'm going to do Spielberg this week? Oh, well, we did Spielberg. Then, yeah, I thought so. I yeah, I we've
0: done so. some populist directors. I just, well, speaking of pleasurable... Um, it's been a long time coming to do a full-blown, uh, comedy director. Although we did Woody Allen early on, um, of course he's been, he's done both comedy and drama, but I've been wanting Corey Pierce, AKA goon on this show for quite a while. Um, he's, he's one of my favorites out there and we both have an unabashed love of the films from David Wayne. Uh, oh Yes. So, you can get a lot of material out of Corey on that particular subject. Indeed. Indeed. I think, you know, I'd love what had American Summer. I love the TV show that just came out. I love everything. And I think Corey and I are just going to, you know, just talk Wayne for two hours or um, and comedy in general, I imagine. So, that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be doing that in a couple weeks. So, I'm really looking forward to that, to just having some some talking David Wayne. So that'll be on, that'll be coming up along with uh, some more interview episodes uh, and a uh, fun music centric episode coming up. Nice. But obviously do visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email over at directorsclubpodcast@gmail. At why don't you do that? You know that a pregnant goldfish is called a twit? I always wonder why people keep goldfish as pets. They belong in the sea and not in a tank. I feel really bad when I go to Dr. Sanders' office and see all these sad fish faces staring at me, screaming, Get me out! Get me out! Plus, it must be really fucking boring to not only just stare at them swimming, but it must be boring for the fish, too. Catfish are the only animals with an odd number of whiskers. Hmm. That's really interesting to me. I like cats. That was weird. Anyway, um... We had some technical difficulties there at the end, so I just want to thank once again <laughs> to Kurt Halfyard and Andrew James for being on the Steven Soderbergh episode, and thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find me over at uh, Instant Gym on Letterboxd, as well as Twitter. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you in a couple weeks for that David Wayne episode with Corey Pierce. Goodbye. Yeah, it's absolutely.
1: It's pretty close to rectal, but... <laughs> in. Instant upgrade. Oh, Sorry, say it again. Where where can we find you on Letterbox?
0: You can find me at uh, Letterbox. Uh, mm,
1: no, you're not coming through. Instant gym. <laughs> no, no. You're it's you're breaking in and out. It's really bad. Oh crap! Yeah. Try one more time. Where can we find you on Letterbox? You can find me on Letterboxd as in. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, there's some. Stop talking, Letterbox That if you mention that, it just stops. <laughs> he, he's still trying to talk, too. You know <laughs> no, what? We'll just. every Hey, wherever you are I'll- on the social media, we'll link to it in the show notes and people should check that out because for whatever reason, you're cutting in and out. That's sad.